I've at least three episodes in a row where Skype has totally crapped out at some point. So that sounds like Skype. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's just, we'll just start the show. Yeah. Um, so Serenity Caldwell, first time on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Busy times. Yes. Yes. Flying all over the place, uh, looking at fancy technology. I'm going to, I, I was looking at my schedule and I'm like, I'm going to be in a different country and or state for the next like five weekends in a row, half of for my job and half for like roller derby randomness. And it's just like, <laughs> it's too much, too much traveling. I don't even have an Apple watch to keep track of it yet. It's bad when you start, like when you have stretches like that and you start to get to know like certain TSA agents, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Where do. you're like, hey, yep, I'm here again. Like, you don't remember my name, but you know me. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, go on through. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, all right. Well, it's like with Boston, I fly Virgin pretty much anywhere. And it's like, there's only, there's this, like this one tiny little security terminal uh, for Boston's Virgin area like we have our own private security terminal which is really awesome because it's like all right quick in and out no problems uh but it also means that yeah there are like three tsa people total so uh so yeah it's like maybe not by a name basis but you get pretty familiar yeah airports are so weird we have like uh eight terminals a b c d e and f here in philly but there's also like i think it's like a one or something there's like a there's like in between like a and b there's like this little tiny thing and it's like certain u.s air flights go out of there and when you go up it is there it's like that it's like literally like the security thing is like three tsa people and and the funny thing is is that they still divide it between tsa pre and not pre <laughs> and there's never it, it's there's only three people there it makes no difference but yet somehow they put the they put the lines in People need their status. Yeah, the Virgin, there's, you know, there's the silver and gold elevate line, which I think I've used maybe once in my life because uh, the line has been long. But otherwise, yeah, it's like two people. It's negligible. Uh, so you were out in California last week for I the was. big uh, <laughs> watch po song and pony show. What do they call it? Dog and pony show. Uh, Something like that. Yeah, I like song and pony show. What's coming up? Um, all right, so I got Toronto this weekend for a roller derby tournament. Uh, then Ireland, I'm going over to Ool, um, which is going to be fun. It's my first time in Dublin and um, just in Ireland in general, other than like flying through. So I'm psyched for that. Insert me crying here because I'm I missing know. Ool. I know. Can we can we like Skype you in and have you still do your dinner? <laughs> we're we're I don't know. I, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's we're a, trying to figure out something. It's a bummer. Uh, but yeah, so it's that. And then um, I think I have a one one sole weekend where I'm in Massachusetts. And then I'm out in California for the Yosemite conference um, and also to see my parents. And then potentially going to Oregon for another roller derby thing. Uh, so it's like, oh, wait, excuse me, Pittsburgh, then, then Yosemite, then Oregon. It's a lot of stuff. Right. And Yosemite is for the... Um um, the Coco Conf. Yeah, Coco Conf. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I remember Davis pitching at me on it a, a while back, and I'm like, "This sounds amazing!" And it's like, "Why? Why not do a uh, a conference about technology in Yosemite? Like that? If if Apple is going to go to the trouble of naming its OS uh, updates after fancy California locations, why not hold a conference there? It's I, gorgeous. <laughs> it makes me cry too because that was also with that's also something I wanted to go to, something I was planning to go to, and also within the uh, 
still can't fly. Uh, Amtrak, John. Do a, do an Amtrak uh, blogging adventure. I looked into that. I looked into that, and it, Amtrak across the country is uh, horrifying. <laughs> like, it's clearly better to just drive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long experience. Uh, my, my buddy Rich Stevens, who does, like, a webcomic, he used to do that, I think, the last two years that he went to San Diego Comic-Con. He did that from Western Mass, and he really liked it because he's like, it's basically, you know, I don't have to go anywhere, and it's Wi-Fi the entire time, and I don't have to worry about driving, and I don't have to worry about, like, staying in crappy motels because I just have this, like, random bed, and then I get to go eat in big cities where they have, like, four-hour layovers. So, but I but I feel like you kind of have to... <laughs> You need to be in a certain mindset to be like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to basically live on a plane or a, a train for nine days and be surrounded by other people constantly. I think the way to go is um, the way John Madden used to travel around the country. Do you remember this? He, John Madden, the football announcer, was mm-hmm. uh, had a terrible fear of flying or just hated it. It just hated, hated flying. And so he had a uh, like, a, I don't know if it was it was like a big bus. He just had a bus and had a, you know, you know, he had lots of money because he was the top of football announcer. <laughs> so he just had like a crew and they just, he just drove his bus everywhere. You know, like maybe this Sunday's game is in New York, next Sunday's in Dallas and the next one's in San Francisco. They just, you know, after the game, they just get in the bus and drive there. Oh and man. And I'm it. sure it was a pimped out bus too. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, right. Like with a kitchen and. Yeah. Hot tub in the back and like just, that's, that sounds kind of amazing, but I feel like, like a, you need it. You need a certain amount of lifestyle uh, and uh, money for you know ten thousand dollar Apple watches and things right, like that. Right, and I, it's not, I don't think it's worth a short term investment for a six to eight week uh, eye injury. But no, no, that would be like a good feature though. Maybe Uber could look into that and uh, <laughs> like a temporary like rock star tour bus. Yeah, exactly. Bus John Gruber around the country. Right. Get I bet you could the, you could do a Patreon a Patreon a Kickstarter one of those. Yeah. Get me to get me to Yosemite. It still wouldn't get me to Ireland, but no, get me to Yosemite. You don't want to go on a boat. Boats are scary. <laughs> well, you know what? It's funny because we looked into it. I forget if I mentioned this on the show before, but we at least looked into You know, it's, it seemed ridiculous. I mean, even mm-hmm. then I've got my, my kid here at school. I can't, you know, I don't want to be away for weeks. But it, it even then it was hard because Ool is too close to winter. So, like, there aren't any... Um, any real cross, uh, cross-Atlantic voyages? Well, there are, but only they only go to uh, Great Britain. And it's funny because when you're flying, if you're flying to Ireland, it's like if your itinerary is like Boston to um, uh, London, what's the big one in London? Uh, Heathrow. Heathrow, yep. And then Heathrow to Dublin. You don't think twice about it. You know know that there's a good chance you're not going to get a direct flight and you don't think twice about the fact. But if if you can't get in a plane, the fact that Ireland and – England are not the same island. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. But it, it would have been terrible. It, it would not terrible, but it's like, a, a, like you take like a Caribbean cruise and it's like you lay out in a deck and it's great. You take, you know, like the Queen Elizabeth <laughs> to England in late March and it's, you know, oh. you, you don't go outside. <laughs> no, you hide in your cabin and you pray that you don't hit I- icebergs. <laughs> right. So no, it's probably oh. All right, we'll, we'll get you like a, a roving, um, what are the, the iPad robots that just kind of glide around and you can like pop into the rooms, and just float float your Twitter avatar or yeah, something it's like crazy a, like that. It's like an uh, iPad on a, a little, uh, what's that scooter called? Uh, like a Segway. A Segway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know there's an official name for it. Actually, it's funny. One of my former Macworld coworkers, uh, Roman Loyola, reviewed one of these things for Macworld. And I feel like it was something like two months after he reviewed it, um, he, in a, like, 
accidentally ended up on the Colbert show because they used our clip of like the crazy iPad Segway robot. So now he's forever like he's infamously known as like the Colbert iPad robot guy. Just <laughs> like he's gotten recognized as that and it, it cracks me up. <laughs> uh so uh let's revisit last week because i feel like everybody still it's funny i think now a week later people are more upset about the macbook part of the announcement than the apple watch yeah i feel like you know i was kind of expecting a lot of hoopla over the ten thousand to seventeen thousand dollar gold watch and instead it's everybody throwing their hands up in uproar one port on a macbook how could you and i'm like do you remember in 2008 when uh when they pulled a computer out of a, a manila envelope and it only had two USB ports and uh, had no no CD drive and everybody, you know, like, I feel like this is the exact same argument just four or five years later. Yeah. I remember that event. I can't remember if it was WWDC or Macworld. Maybe it was, I think it was I Macworld. I think Expo. it was Macworld because I remember I wasn't working in the tech industry at the time, but I, I seem to remember pictures of like the MacBook Airs hanging on strings yeah. Yeah. And I remember before the keynote, the banners said there's something in the air. <laughs> and for some reason, it's like the rumor, the, the, the 48 hour, you know, there's like that, that like once certain signs start going up at, at Yerba Buena, or in this case, it was, uh, Moscone West. Mm -hmm. Then the rumors reach a fever pitch because people start trying to read into what it is that Apple has shown. Whereas anybody with any common sense would know that whatever they're showing you that's not covered up is is not going to give it away. Oh, no. And if anything, they're outright teasing you because they know you're going to try and criminology it to death. Right. And I remember that the rumor – I remember this I, – I usually the years blur together to me, but I remember this very distinctly. It was that the rumor du jour was that Air was the name of Apple's in-house flash killer. Oh, I remember that. And that it would be called Air, and it was going to be... And I remember saying, I don't think so, because if it was, they wouldn't put the name of it on the banner. And B, I really think they mean it, that they... That they, it's not just flashing, but that they don't, they don't want a proprietary binary blob thing on the web. Like, they really do mean that they think HTML5 is the way forward mm -hmm. for the web. Like, <laughs> I really think this is wrong. And then people were upset when they ended up being a notebook. They were like, well, what happened to the flash killer? <laughs> and it was like they never said they were going to do a flash killer. No, like, you, you, you whipped it up from thin air. Surprise. Right. <laughs> I was promised a flash killer. <laughs> you were promised nothing. All right. Go uh, play with your shiny new MacBook Air. Yeah, but the parallels to, uh, to, to that device, the first macbook air i i it's almost exact mm -hmm. other than the fact that they didn't pull it out of a manila envelope it's pretty much exact same scenario oh absolutely i mean it's you have something that was like the 2000 macbook air i was working at an apple store at the time um and i mean it was underpowered too expensive and not really designed for uh not really designed for the general public at that point and everybody just kind of poo-pooed it we're like oh this you know this computer is ridiculous how do they expect us to use it it's thin and that's cool but it's impractical blah 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 and now you know a couple years later the entire laptop line is based off of the 
uh, the innovations and the creations that originated from that 2008 MacBook Air. Here's I'm, here's where my memory gets fuzzy. I know that the base model still had a spinning hard drive. Yes. Did, was there an SSD option? I, I think believe, there was. yeah, there was and an it, SSD option, but it was expensive. And I it wanna, was like 64 mega or 64 gigs. Yeah. I, I, maybe it was 128. I can't remember now. I'm like, I, I sold, I think, four of these in the, um, in the like two years I was working at the store. And granted, I wasn't on the floor a whole lot selling things. Like I was, a, I taught classes most of the time. But even so, it was like the only time that you got to get a MacBook Air out from like the back of house storage was when like somebody in a fancy suit came in who was like, oh, I just need a I need a third laptop for travel. Like it was definitely a high end businessman's like I'm sitting on a plane for a long t- period of time and I want to work on like a f- super light computer um, sort of thing. But it was <laughs> wicked expensive. Here's Here it is. Uh, <laughs> Jackie Cheng had an article on it for ours uh back in february 2008 i'm copying this url right now the famous last words on this show is i say it's going to be in the show notes and then i forget to put it in the show notes um but i've got it in my bb edit file right now it costs 1300 extra and it was 64 gigabytes (laughs) oh my god so the high-end air in in early 2008 was all right, so the regular one, MacBook Air with a hard drive. <laughs> 1.6 gigahertz Intel yeah. Core 2 Duo. Yep. Oh Both of them only had two gigs of RAM. Oh, yeah. And it had a, the other, the spinning hard disk one only had an 80 gig hard drive, an 80 gig, four, 420 RPM hard drive, and then the 64 gigabyte solid state drive was an extra $1,300. <laughs> so in other words, the cost of the entire new MacBook exactly the same price like mm-hmm. for for an entirely new macbook it was what it cost to upgrade to the ssd so i guess that was like thirty one hundred dollars i yeah, forget what the base like price that. wasn't it eighteen hundred i want to say it was seventeen or eighteen hundred dollars i'm trying to pull this let's see i'm trying to pull this up somewhere um of course, I'm looking at an old macworld review and of course we don't have the price anywhere yeah, that's why? helpful what's, what's wrong with these people <sighs> That's it. From now on, I'm just making articles that have prices. <laughs> no, it's uh, but it was pretty. Here we go. Yeah, seventeen ninety nine was the base configuration. Yeah. So it was thirty one hundred dollars to get it with an SSD. And truth be told, you really weren't getting the MacBook Air experience without an SSD. Oh no! Like, and it's clear they came out with it. And the reason they had the one with the hard drive was because SSDs were so insanely expensive in two thousand eight. Yeah, in two thousand eight, that they really did not want to have the base model be thirty one hundred dollars. It just the optics would just be bad. But that really was the one to get to to get the experience. Like that was clearly where they were going. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I think it was within a year they dropped the the hard drives or, oh yeah it was well i remember the um the 2010 macbook airs and that was the first macbook air i owned when when they came out with the 11 inch and the 13 inch and all of a sudden not only were the macbook airs affordable but they were in super tiny you know court or uh powerbook duo style uh builds and i was like all right i can i can deal with two usb ports if it you know if it comes in an 11 inch size sure <laughs> 
I remember. I remember. I think it was Will Shipley. I think he had the first Air. I think, and he, but he、mm. had the SSD one, and he was doing you know software development on it, which sounds crazy because, like you said, it was overall in grand scheme of things an underpowered device.、Mm-hmm. But I remember him right, and if it wasn't the first gen one, he had a very early one in the very early days when they were relatively expensive and relatively slow in terms of CPU performance.、Um, and he raved about it because the SSD was so great at like. When you're compiling stuff with Xcode, you're touching lots and lots, hundreds of little files、mm-hmm. very quickly, and that's where an SSD blows a spinning hard drive away. Is touching lots of lots of little files and right one after another after another. And so for compiling stuff in Xcode, he's he. I remember him writing about it. He was like, "This is a fantastic machine. I cannot wait for the future when everything is SSD."、Um, mm-hmm. So there were definitely people who loved it, and it was there. But it's you know it was it, it was ahead of its time. Oh、Apple、yeah.、Did. Do you remember the first computer you had that hasn't had an SSD in it? Because I know for me it was it was life changing. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was a, my a fifteen inch、uh, MacBook Pro, or no, no, maybe it wasn't a MacBook Pro. I,、um, I mean, I was going to say a PowerBook. It was it was、oh. a MacBook Pro, fifteen inch <laughs> MacBook Pro that didn't ship with、uh, an SSD. I bought it.、Uh, Is that, that's actually the last time I ever upgraded a Mac after I bought it too.、Uh, but I bought like an OWC、mm-hmm. upgrade package,、um, and it was like getting a new machine. I got did it like two years after I bought it, and it really did. You know, I don't know what it cost me, maybe like eight hundred dollars, and it felt like I just got a new two thousand dollar MacBook Pro. It was crazy. Like I actually, I did the same thing after I bought my my twenty ten MacBook Air,、um, and I, I, you know, going from I had a fifteen inch MacBook Pro that was running on a, a spinning disk, and once I got the Air, it was it was like night and day. Where it's like the Pro, the Pro, despite being I think three or four times as powerful as the Air. Uh, felt like it was, you know, running in molasses, and I was just like, ah, screw this computer! I'm just going to use the air for full time, you know, doing everything. And when I started doing、uh, video development, I was like, all right, you know what? Maybe I need to、uh, consider. Can I put an SSD in the Pro? And then when I did, it was exactly how you described. It's like it it turns the machine upside down into a brand new device. Like it it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're working on a two th- or three year old computer anymore, despite the fact that the internals might be, you know, severely outdated. Yeah, and it's like and every you know I, I probably everybody listening is I mean I wonder what percentage of people are on SSDs now. Yeah, well, I think well, most of the laptops now have SSD standard, but it's the it's the iMacs that are still a little、right. tricky.、Um, I, we were talking about this before the show,、uh, where my my iMac is fitting out right now because I think the the hard drive is slowly dying, and it's a it's a normal spinning spinning platter.、Um, and I didn't even realize that when I when I got the computer, I thought that it would it came with an SSD standard.、And、of course, I had my company, you know, the company ordered it for me, and I was just kind of like, everything comes with SSDs now. It's it's twenty you know twenty twelve twenty thirteen like that's that's no question. And then at some point, I'm like, man, this iMac is really slow compared to my you know my tiny little laptop. And I finally realized, oh, it has a hard drive in it.、Um, yeah. So I, I feel like people who have the desktop computers may not like the standard configuration for an iMac. Is I believe、uh, a big hard drive, and like, yeah, a terabyte hard drive is really tempting, but go, like, you don't need it, a terabyte of space. <laughs> I'm just looking now. The, the standard config for every iMac is a hard drive, except the Retina 5K iMac, which still is a Fusion drive, which is the the 
it's you know the crazy it looks like one volume <laughs> but it's an ssd and a hard drive combined right which is a really good uh fascinating technology and really cool and it seems you know a couple of years in it seems like it works really well in practice but. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, there. Are, so, uh, I know a couple people in the PC building uh, industry, and like that's that's been really popular for a while. Putting in an SSD and a big hard drive, but with the PC market, it was put the boot drive on the SSD, and then all the other files on the hard drive. And the Fusion drive, as far as I understand it, um, it all happens under the hood, and it yeah. and it's seamless. So not only is the boot drive on the SSD, but any files that you're currently working on get pulled over magically to the ssd and theoretically you shouldn't notice it so you're never you never really should be drawing any files uh, actively off of the hard drive it's just where you know inactive files live kind of like old school memory and i'm like yeah. that's that's really cool that's a like that's a great piece of technology yeah but it still doesn't save you from the lack of reliability oh no and the, <laughs> you know and the performance stuff you eventually you know depending on what you do it the performance eventually Eventually, you suffer and and you get the performance of a spinning hard disk, depending on what you're doing. You know? Yeah, exactly. All you know, all hard drives eventually die. Right, importing a bunch of file or photos into iPhoto or exporting them out or something like that. Anything like that, where you're looking at, you know, you're gonna, you know, looking at a gig or two of data. It's you, you know, you're clearly you can't make, you know, can't put fifty pounds of data in a. No, it, a, <laughs> it can only hold so much before it has to to look to the heavyweight, even if the heavyweight is you know right. has a speed of one. All right, but oh yeah, right though all the all the notebooks now are SSD. I mean, I guess you can still get like if you cheap out and get the cheap MacBook Pros, they still come with hard disks. Mm. The Retina ones all are SSD, and the Airs are all SSD. Yeah, is there? I haven't actually looked at the the store configuration since last week event. Does the does the thirteen inch non Retina MacBook Pro still exist? Is that still a configuration, or did the the new MacBook officially yes. just no. kill it? It still it still is there. MacBook Pro thirteen inch, two point five gigahertz. It's only ten ninety nine, yeah. um, but it's a five hundred gigabyte, fifty four hundred RPM hard drive and four gigs of RAM. I'm I'm honestly I'm. That's to me a sort of a baffling configuration to me. I, I can't see why anyone would buy that. The like only, if, you're, yeah. if, if your price is ten ninety nine and you're really kind of price sensitive and you don't want that thirteen hundred dollar Retina one, I really can't see why you don't just get the Air. Yeah, I, I suspect that that configuration must solely exist for education, maybe. Um, with the idea of like education folks who want to do video editing or something like that, but even then, like the airs are pretty good for video editing at this point. Like the the Core i sevens that they they have available. Like I I routinely use my eleven inch for for a lot of uh, video <laughs> video intensive stuff that I'm probably not supposed to, but it's definitely like it's functional. It's yeah. not you know it's. I don't know. <laughs> My son and I went into the Apple store just the other day because um, I forget we had a he had a weird issue with his his MacBook Pro um, that we couldn't fix at home, and it ended up the genius just needed to. Um, you remember the SMC re reset mm -hmm. system memory controller, and the old way to do it in the old days was you take the battery out, or yeah. if it was a desktop, you'd unplug it. Um, Doesn't work so well with no. That. <laughs> and there's a keyboard shortcut you hold down Shift Option. Control, I think, on mm -hmm. the left side of the keyboard, shift option control, not command. 
and restart. And then the if you have it plugged in, you know that it did the SMC reset because the color yeah. will change on the uh, uh, MagSafe mm. from like green to orange or orange to green. But it didn't solve it for him. His it just wouldn't turn on. The screen wouldn't turn on. Um, so I thought it was bad news. Like, uh, God's, you know, it's going to need to be replaced. It's under warranty. It's n relatively new. Um, but it ended up, he just needed to take it back in their secret lab and uh, take the battery out. And then <laughs> it just started right up. Uh, so anyway, all, you know, all went well with that. Um, but while we were there, I was like, we got to try out this new force touch trackpad. And we went over to the table with the 13 inch MacBook pros. And the first one we went to was the, the low end one that didn't, doesn't have the new trackpad and doesn't even have a retina screen. And we were both like, Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud of him. He was like, grossed out by the, the non retina screen. Yeah. Like, Who would buy this? It, it really is uh, starkly different once you get used to the retina. Um, I remember having a conversation I want to say the year before we got the iPhone 4, I want to say, um, where I was talking with a friend of mine and he's like, I just don't understand why Apple just doesn't do retina screens. Like they did, we didn't call them retina at that point, but I, I don't understand why uh, Apple doesn't do high DPI screens because they have the technology and text looks terrible. And as a designer, I want to see things clearly. And that's the next generation of technology. And like two weeks after we have this conversation, the new iPhone comes out and he was like a kid at Christmas. He was just like, oh my God, I can't wait until I have this in my iMac. It's, 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 it really is, you know, it's stark. It's, it's one of the few things that I'm sorely kind of missing on my MacBook Air right now. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if the new MacBook is currently enough for me that I would swap over, but it's definitely tempting. Yeah, just for retina. Yeah, but force touch. Oh my god! <laughs> All right, hold that thought. Let's talk yeah. about force touch, and let me let me take a breakdown. Do the first sponsor. Um, let's do our good friends at Squarespace. You know uh, Squarespace. That's where you go if you have a, you need to make a website. Go to Squarespace. They do everything. You can register domains. You get templates to start from, and you can build any type of website with Squarespace. You want to build an online store? You can build an online store. They already have that as a component. They already handle all the commerce. They handle the credit card processing, all the security, making sure everything goes through SSL instead of unencrypted over. Everything like that is just built into everybody's Squarespace account. Um, all their templates are responsive. Everything looks great from a four-inch phone to a 27-inch 5K cinema display iMac. Um, and you can get started free of charge. You get a whole month. Just go there, sign up, start using it, and your website fully functional, no limits for a full month before you have to pay a nickel. Uh, it's a tremendous deal. And plans start at a ridiculous 8 bucks a month. It's ridiculous that you get all this for 8 bucks a month. Um, they have a new new um, backend. They call it Squarespace 7. You can find out all the new features. Because Squarespace has been sponsoring podcasts for years. So you know you've heard of them. You've And everybody listening to this has heard of them. You want to find out what's new. That You go to squarespace.com slash 7, S-E-V-E-N. Spell it out like the, uh, like the uh, David Fincher movie. Uh, and they've got a great, great site that explains all the new stuff. I could go on for minutes and minutes and minutes with all the new stuff. Um, but the biggest thing, the fundamental thing that they've really emphasized in Squarespace 7 is making everything visual. They've always been graphical. It's always been a great platform for non-technical people to set up their own website. But now 
it's so WYSIWYG, it's ridiculous. It's the, the WYSIWYG web editor that people have been looking for for 20 years. Like what you see when you're logged into your Squarespace account, if you want to move something from the left to the right, you just move it from the left to the right and then boom, it save it and it's moved from the left to the right for everybody who visits your website. Could not be more obvious and visual. Uh, so go there, check it out, check out the new features in Squarespace 7 and go to if you want to go uh, just to start and then know that, that you came from the show, go to squarespace.com slash Gruber. That's the URL that, that lets people know you're coming from the talk show. And then when you do sign up, which you won't have to do for an entire month because you get the whole month free. But when you do sign up, use the code JG and you will save uh, 10% on your first order. Uh, you could save a lot of money that way. So my thanks to Squarespace. Check them out. If you have any sort of desire to build a website, go check them out. All right. Force Touch. Force Touch. Do you okay. think that's a good name? Um, I am conflicted. Only If only because they're calling they're calling this the gestures Force Touch and they're calling the trackpad Force Touch. And I feel like the same problem with, you know, having a collection of the watch just called the watch. Uh, it's hard to describe the gesture and also inadvertently describe the trackpad itself. You know, like we got to figure out specific language, but I think that's just a that's that's a journalist word problem. Um, it's not a bad name overall, I don't think. Right. So as a verb, it means to press a finger hard either on your watch or on this new trackpad. Uh, to engage whatever it is that Force Touch does in your current context. Mm -hmm. And the trackpad itself is called the Force Touch trackpad. Yeah. I, I, here's why I, 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 I bring this up because um, uh, Dieter Bone at The Verge had an article that, you know, great trackpad except for the lousy name <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And I, I was like, that. what are you talking about, lousy name? Number one, most people like have no idea what the, it's not like they're really going to advertise, I don't think, that the name force touch trackpad it's just a way to distinguish it and then like you know as the time goes on if you have like a 13 inch macbook pro you could say is that the one with the force touch trackpad or not it just is a way to clarify whether it can do it or not yeah it's like retina display or anything anything else that uh, that apple's used descriptive names for um yeah i i see really no problem with it um and it's Honestly, it's a. It, I feel like it's a good descriptor. What, what? How would you rather describe it? Like the taptic engine trackpad, the the haptic trackpad. Like then you start. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I've heard that that was even plausible would be to call it the taptic trackpad, which yeah. isn't bad. I, I I and I'll bet it's close enough that it was probably like on the finalist list. You know, oh, there's sure. a, like a whiteboard in Phil Schiller's <laughs> office, and it says like Force Touch trackpad, Taptic trackpad, Taptic engine trackpad, TE right. trackpad. Yeah, and, no, and I, there's like a circle around Force <laughs> Touch trackpad. Exactly with stars. Um, I yeah, I like it better than I, I used. I think both descriptions when I was writing about it in our hands on, and I I like Force Touch trackpad as a as a moniker or just Force Touch technology in general. Because especially, you know, we've seen it on the watch. Now we've, we're seeing it on a trackpad that's essentially the size of an iPhone 6 screen. I, I don't think it's unlikely that we'll see it on iOS devices uh, in the next year or so. And as a result, like you, you're going to need a you're going to need a, a way to describe it versus, you know, you've got a retina display with uh, with force touch multi-touch technology. That's a lot of touches. But <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Right. Yeah, it's uh... I and the, the complaint against it, and I I'm as 
juvenile as anybody, I think. But the complaint is that it's, you know, like, har har, you know, it sounds like rapey Forced or something. touch. Right. Yeah. And I kind of feel like you can't, anything touch can be made into that type of joke. Like, multi-touch clearly can. And yeah. it reminds me of the complaints that iPad, iPad yeah. sounded like, you know, a feminine hygiene product. And I'm, it's like, really? You know, uh, it's, you know, I remember not being in love with iPad when they first said it, but I didn't think, well, this is awful. Yeah, it's not the worst name in the world. There, there are plenty of more terrible names that I'm sure we would be much more in arms about uh, had Apple chosen to use those instead I, of their preformed ones. When we were when we were playing the what are they going to call their tablet guessing game? I didn't guess iPad, but my only, but it was one of the ones that was tossed out because it mm -hmm. seemed kind of obvious. And my only brush aside of iPad was it sounds and looks too much like iPod. So they're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And they just went ahead and did it. And like, I spent two years on this show calling it an iPod. <laughs> 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 so I was right that it was very similar, but it's like, ah, they did, just didn't care. But that's yeah. how I feel about the force touch thing. It's like, come on. It's not that bad a name. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, as I said, it's a, it's a good descriptor of what it, I mean, either that or they could have called it the magical what's it trackpad you won't believe is actually doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, you, I mean, you got a chance to test it out in the store. It feels yeah. wacky, right? It's crazy. You really, it's just like Matthew Panzerino said on my show last week that it's, he didn't, he didn't really rec, he didn't know that it wasn't clicking until they, like he kind of, cause you miss it when you're sitting there in the room watching the keynote, like it's you you can't rewind right i mean that's yeah. it that was the one thing that, like having you know getting for the first time in years getting to watch one remotely instead of there you definitely it's easier you know to you can pause for a second and write your note and then you know just fall behind by 10 seconds in the stream and go when you're in the room you miss stuff and he missed the emphasis that it doesn't actually move. And so he went in the hands-on area and was like, this is great. You know, it's neat the way it clicks. And they're like, well, it doesn't really click. And he's like, what are you talking about? And then they, they told him and he was like, that's not true. And they like turned the machine off for him so he could try it when the machine was off and you know, it doesn't move. Yeah. That, it's uncanny. And that's the baffling part is I didn't get a chance to, to try it out until, uh, until this week with, uh, with the machine completely off. I went to an Apple store and that, is when you realize, oh, this is actually some high-level wizardry crap. Like, this... I know what it is doing, in theory. Like, I know that, you know, the... <laughs> it's not electromagnets, but it's it's something similar. I know that it's basically sending it, sending vibrations to my finger that make it feel like a click, even though my finger is moving sideways. But in my brain, it feels like I am pressing down and the trackpad is physically depressing. And that's even more so... Um, I don't know if... They they had like different apps uh, on the app at the Apple Store that you were playing with, but like I got to play with it in a couple of different things, including QuickTime. And the QuickTime one was the really sort of crazy, wacky. My brain is being slowly disassembled into mush thing, <laughs> um, because when you're in when you're in QuickTime with Force Touch, uh, and you press the fast forward button, as you like put a little bit more pressure on the trackpad, it speeds up to the point where it like it speeds up like sixty times, but you can slowly release that pressure while your finger is still down and the speed starts to slow down again so it feels almost like a gas pedal worth of uh worth of trackpad where you're like and like that i don't know it's such a it's such a different experience than i've ever had on a computer 
like I mean that's a that's a technological like that's old school right cars have had that kind of control for years uh, but being able to do that on a flat glass surface was was really kind of mind-bogglingly you know time bendingly crazy yeah which in turn makes me wonder about like the gaming implications Oh yeah, the gaming implications, the drawing implications. You yeah, know. And drawing. Pressure sense. I love that um, on the on the MacBook website where they're like uh, pressure sensitive drawing, and then they show a picture of the the uh, preview signature uh, because that's the that's the only thing that Apple has in its default apps that can accurately show pressure sensitive drawing mm. but as soon as they started talking about that and i like i quizzed the apple reps pretty in-depthly being like so pressure sensitivity how many levels do you have like what it, what are we talking about here um and they are of course very very charmingly vague as always but um but what i was able to get out is like there's a there's a fair amount of ramp built into the built into the underlying software technology of force touch which means and and the fact that it's available as an SDK for developers to hook into, um, it basically means that like developers can set sort of click points and pressure points at any point like along this curve, uh, this this you know pressure sensitivity curve. So in theory, you could you could have any number of pressure points or any number of uh, you know multiple clicks. I, I just think about like going back to games for a second. I think about uh, playing WoW in college and having to go get like a six button mouse to like map all of my key combos right. to. And I'm like, with a force touch trackpad, in theory, you could have like a different level of pressure touch for each key combo or each like mouse combo that you'd normally need like an up button, a down button, a side button, a squeeze button. Like that, that is, that is really, really nifty to me. Yeah, and I think about like how when you get really into like the type of software you specialize in, like if you're an audio editor or a video editor and you just live and breathe in, you know, your editing software. And once that's force touched enabled for like scrubbing, you know, which is mm -hmm. clearly, I mean, like you said, it's already built into QuickTime. So it's clearly, you know, that's the way things are going, but you'll, you'll be able, like once you're, you know, and you do it 40, 50, 60 hours a week, it's like, you'll be able to play that scrub controller, like playing a musical instrument, you know, in terms of going faster and slower with your touch. Yeah. I mean, did you see the, um, there was an iMovie update a couple of days ago that um, came out with support for force touch uh, trackpads. And it offered, it came with two different things, um, one of which I think is the scrubbing feature. And the other was there's a little bit, now when you kind of scroll through a clip, you get a little bit of haptic feedback when you come to the end of a clip or you bump at the end of the clip. Oh. So, I mean, I'm like, I didn't even think about that, where yeah. it's, again, um, texture as well as physical clicking yeah like, it really brings back analog sensibility yeah uh well i mean you remember the knobs like the the <laughs> the usb knobs that are the i want to say it's kensington that makes them um oh, where it, and it glowed blue right mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> kensington or belkin or something like that um but like i knew editors who absolutely relied on those knobs who are like yeah th this is as close as i'm gonna get to a physical editing machine and it's like well five years down the line now you now you potentially have a trackpad that can do all of that what what is right. this madness <laughs> that's great i never even thought about that though but that's brilliant though to have like just like a slight 
tick as you get between clicks and then mm -hmm. you can feel it. And it's again, like you go back to like the analog era when you people, you know, like to edit film, you'd literally splice pieces of film together. Mm -hmm. And at that splice, there'd be a physical, you know, like where you you'd just pretty much just put tape around it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny to me because you think on the on the software side, Apple has been working harder and harder to kind of take the skeuomorphism out of the design. Uh, but I feel like in a, in a large way, they're kind of putting that into hardware. So it's like we don't necessarily need our video clips to look like analog video clips anymore. Um, but we're going to give you more and more controls on the physical side that make it feel like you're dealing with tangible materials that make it feel like you're actually interacting with something besides glass. It's I, I don't know, it feels like the you know, the the idea of the iPad or the iPhone as blank slate was step one, where it's like, okay, you can load anything on it. Now we're going to let you touch anything on it God, now where, ah, where else could you do that like i'm even imagining like in the future if it gets more refined mm -hmm. like like as you like if you're editing text and you have like a red squiggly underlined word that's misspelled like maybe you get like a slight as you move the arrow over it it it, it buzzes a, yeah. yeah or like just a little bit of friction or something yeah just a well yeah it makes your scroll slightly slower right like maybe you want to stop here yeah. Well, and the accessibility implications, too, are huge. Like, imagine instead of having to have a Braille keyboard or a Braille touchpad, um, turning on maybe uh, accessibility Braille or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're moving your cursor over words and it feels like the Braille version of the word. Like, obviously, that's probably years down the line, but yeah. it's still like the potential of that is really cool. Right. Or anytime it hovers over a button, really. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Popping out buttons. I'm sure just like with almost every SDK that has weird, crazy things like this, I'm sure that everybody and their mother is going to make buttons that give you haptic feedback for like the first year, right? Where you like you roll over it. It's like every single button goes like bump, 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 bump. But as people kind of get uh, more used to it, I, th I feel like we could we can have some really, really revolutionary stuff. Yeah. The thing that really blew me away was, and, and I've known this because I've, I've never been fully on board with their getting rid of the separate buttons mm -hmm. for the trackpad. So like, you know, like step one was they got rid of buttons and made the whole trackpad a button. Yeah. And I've never been fully on board with that because, and Schiller, you know, showed the mechanics of it exactly because it's like a teeter totter with the fulcrum at the top. Yeah, you can't click on the top. It's hard to click on the top. And I click at the top way more than I click at the bottom because mm -hmm. the menus bars at the top, you know, the, the close button for Windows is at the top, the tabs are at the top. So I've never been fully on board with that because the trackpad clicks better at the bottom. Uh, and even for years, I guess I've kind of gotten away from it. But the way that you can still keep your thumb at the bottom and just do all your clicks there, even mm -hmm. if you're you know moving it, they kind of let you treat it like the buttons are still there at the bottom. Um, with the Force Touch trackpad, the click is the same everywhere. Yeah. And it's like this is the first one where not having the standalone buttons, there's no trade-off involved. No, it's – it, it is really cool. Like I, I intentionally, um, when I played around with it in the hands-on, I intentionally was like clicking in corners, trying to like see, all right, well, is is this really click anywhere or is it like click in the center? And it really is. Like you can go to the top left corner. And I think I only got one bad click out of like 10 minutes of yeah. playing around with that trackpad. My son was really skeptical. So he's fifth grade and they have a bunch of Chromebooks at his school. And 
it's not because he's my son. He just is. He said all the kids hate them because <laughs> all the kids have like apple stuff at home, <laughs> and they all hate them. Uh, and then like the one day it was like they had like a, they everybody got in trouble because uh, a whole bunch of them got like trashed. And I was like, that's why you guys have Chromebooks instead of MacBooks mm-hmm. because you're a bunch of reckless. F- anyway, <laughs> but all the the Chromebooks they have don't click. They're tap trackpads. You, ah. you move them around. And then you just tap to do it. And he said that. And that's what he thought this was going to be like. And I said, no, I'm telling you. I was like, I haven't felt it yet. But trust me, there's no way Apple would ship it like that. And he Mm-mm. was like rolling his eyes. And he was like, I'm so glad I already have my trackpad that clicks. And then we got to the store. And he was, you know, he was like, okay, you're right. This is nothing like the, the Chromebooks. Yeah. I mean, I've hated tap. Like, I have tap to click on now. But I this is like after seven years of being like tap to click is horrible and you accidentally you know brush on it and then your cursor moves everywhere and it just it's it's such an uncomfortable compromise um especially um if you like have like i i like having my trackpad very uh very responsive i like it being very quick uh so having tap to click on it's like oh you you move it once and then all of a sudden your trackpad's over here and and you're selecting some text that you never intended um i don't know i like the physical buttons i've always liked the physical buttons and so having apple actually be able to to build something that feels like physical buttons but uses the uh uses the technology of of uh, the multi-touch trackpad it's really cool yeah. All right. Let me take a break. I'm still not done talking about force touch, but let me take a break and thank our next sponsor. And it's our good friends at Foremost, F-O-R-E-M-O-S-T. They're a brand new, small batch, American-made clothing line for men and women. Each month, Foremost designs and produces limited collections of men's and women's clothing, roughly four or five items per gender. Not a lot, not overwhelming, underwhelming, almost in terms of selection. You go there, you can check it out very quickly, see if you're interested, and if you are, you can buy it. Um, and it's it's also an editorial publication, and they have a great interview series with some of the world's most inspiring creative people. Uh, and importantly, the average price of Foremost's products is under 50 bucks. So this is definitely affordable stuff. Uh, and again, made in America, Really cool stuff. This is pure coincidence. I didn't even know they were on the schedule to be the sponsor today. I'm actually wearing today a sweater that I bought last month from them. Um, that I, my wife is like, "You going to wear that one again?" <laughs> I really like it. It's, it's a nice sweater. Uh, so they just launched their second collection this week. Uh, their interviews this month include Eller Coltrane. She's uh, the star of Boyhood which I still haven't seen, but I've heard is an amazing movie. Only, only reason I haven't seen it is I'm like saving it because I know I'm going to love it. Cause I'm such a big fan of, uh, uh, Richard Linklater. Uh, another interview E is Anna Margaret Holliman, independent actress, writer, and film director. Uh, and this is brought to you by the same people, uh, who did need who sponsored the show in behalf in the past need is a curated retailer and publication for men and they just launched their latest collection, too, featuring items to transition from fall into spring. Uh, talk show listeners interested in visiting Foremost or need either one can use the promo code. Promo code. <laughs> I love these guys. <laughs> That's the promo code. All one word. P-R-O-M-O-C-O-D-E. The promo code is promo code. 
at checkout and and you'll receive 20% off. Go to Foremost Edition, edition, not edition, not like math. Foremostedition.com uh or neededition.com and use that promo code. I, so in other words, the the stuff is already under 50 bucks on average. You can save 20% off with that code. And it's really cool stuff. So go check them out. Uh, I could not be happier with the stuff that I've bought from. Uh, so I, I I think everybody's thinking about this. So usually the last, I would say, you know, really pretty much since the iPhone came out, iOS has sort of been the leading edge platform for, for new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it wasn't like back to iPhone. It was back to the Mac when, you know, stuff like multi-touch and, and things like that. Um, but here's force touch and iOS is last platform to the game. Yeah. You could argue that the watch technically led with it, but the watch isn't out yet. And the, I mean, I guess the MacBook isn't out yet either, but, but yeah, I'm, I think it's interesting because I mean, we've heard rumors about, haptic feedback uh, coming to the Mac and iOS platforms for years. I want to say the first uh, the first patent over this thing came out, I want to say like three or four months after the original iPad. Um, I remember, you know, looking over in a frenzy being like, pressure sensitive screen, pressure sensitive screen drawing. Oh, my gosh. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like this technology has been very long in development. Um, and it just it's which uh, the the platform that made the most sense to launch it on, I think, is probably I when I think about launching it on iOS versus launching it on the Mac, I feel like there's a lot more flexibility on the Mac platform, if that makes sense, uh, than iOS in that um, iOS has so many different multi-touch controls at this point, especially when you translate over to the iPad, um, that introducing force touch on the on the phone first, being like, not only do you have contextual menus with force touch, but we're opening this up to app developers. And I feel, I'm like, I'm trying to think about when you would launch such a thing. It would probably be WWDC because, you know, you want an SDK for this and all of that. Um, and the only real time to do that would have been last year, during the iOS 8 extravaganza explosion. Um, and that's I feel actually, that's an interesting point. I haven't thought about that. So, hmm, how do you, like, so they did, last year is a perfect example where they snuck into WWDC, not snuck, but they <laughs> had a whole bunch of sessions, important sessions on uh, the, the display sizes, mm -hmm. in the, you know, <laughs> which really only made sense in the context of there are going to be some new screen sizes. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> But they didn't say that. They it was all sort of hypothetical. Like mm -hmm. if if you had a device that was bigger than an iPhone but smaller than an iPad, blah blah blah. <laughs> Hypothetically, uh, I'm not sure they could get away with that with Force Touch. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for iOS. Well, yeah, exactly. Where they're like, oh, potentially this thing is coming down the line. Hint, hint. Nudge, nudge. Um, whereas if you lead off with force touch in the watch and force touch in the Mac, um, and you lead off in the spring with it, that gives people all of the spring, all of the summer, some of the fall to get used to developing properly 
with it. You know, and we were talking about button button a palooza. Like it, it gets uh, it allows developers to kind of get all of their um, immediate must use this everywhere kind of out of their system. And it allows them to get to know the force test touch technology well enough so that when, say, they come out down the line in September saying, oh, guess what? You know that iPad Pro rumor or, you know, the iPhone, the iPhone, it has force touch too now. We have we have force touch across all our devices and uh, we'll release an SDK for developers to uh, to be able to build with it. Uh, any developer who's already been playing around on the Mac is like, oh, yeah, I know how force touch works. I know perfectly how I could implement this into my app. Whereas, you know, you, you try and do it the other way around. Um, you try and launch, you know, a brand new technology uh, on on iOS in advance. I don't, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. But I- well, one of the things, I mean, you you personally are like, a, I don't know, I don't even know, like a hobbyist level illustrator. You yeah. like to sketch, you like to draw. So clearly that's one of the things you're personally looking at this for. Absolutely. But it's way more interesting on iOS and especially the iPad than it is on the Mac for drawing because drawing on a trackpad is always going to have, no matter how sensitive the trackpad is, there's that layer of indirection where you're drawing on this thing that doesn't show what you're drawing and you're looking above it on a display where it shows what you're drawing. Whereas drawing on an iPad, it's right there. It's drawing directly on the screen. Yeah, it's the the contrast between anybody who's ever used a uh, a Wacom tablet. Um, it's the difference between an Intuos two, you know, just sketching on this on the static uh, the static surface and having it reflect on the screen versus like a Cintiq, which is a monitor. Right. So actually having it directly under. Um, when the Force Touch first came out, I got really excited and I wrote an article on iMore about, you know, what what does this mean for the rumored iPad Pro and what does this mean for iPads in general? And someone was like, you can't use Force Touch on a on a multi-touch screen with a with pixels. It's going to damage the pixels. And I got a really good laugh out of that because <laughs> I'm like, technically, a, a MacBook trackpad is a... Uh, Oop, there went my phone. Um, <laughs> it's fine. It's in a case. Um, the MacBook trackpad is a multi-touch screen, essentially. They're just there are no pixels underneath it. And again, the glass gl- doesn't move. <laughs> it is glass. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I'm sure it's engineering-wise trickier because you've also got a display, but it's Sure, you gotta map you gotta map the uh, your input to specific pixels on the screen. Yeah. Which is also, I mean, that's something, um, speaking from putting my Illustrator hat on for a second, that's something that uh, illustrators and stylus makers have struggled with a lot with the iPad uh, because the iPad's uh, initial touch targets were very much built for finger-sized input. Uh, so it's also why you saw like styluses with these big round sort of uh, rubbery nibs uh, the right. first couple years. Um, and also why, if you have an iPad Air 2 and a stylus, all of a sudden the stylus like is cruddy. It doesn't work very well anymore because between the iPad Air and the iPad Air 2, they like completely changed how finger input was done. So, uh, so on a from a finger point, doesn't feel like anything. But from a stylus, all of a sudden, like, oh, uh, the pixels are off mapped and everything's off center, and uh, sometimes you won't even like it doesn't even connect. Like it's a bunch of bunch of gibberish. Which anyway, like the the, the point of that is just that um, actually having mapped 
pixels to pressure sensitivity, press, pressure sensitivity, and uh, and a pressure sensitive screen would be huge for artists. And like, I just, I you know, I dick around, I, I sketch sometimes. I'm not, you know, I'm not a heavy duty illustrator, but I talk to like, I have friends who are cartoonists and web cartoonists who, you know, who have been wanting a, a pressure sensitive iPad screen for for years because the idea, especially with something like handoff, the idea of being able to start a sketch on your iPad and have the same amount of control and precision as you do, you know, working on a, on a Wacom Cintiq, it's, it's a pipe dream. It's a, it's like that, that is the thing that, uh, that artists want. Yeah. And I think that it's only natural that the smarts go into the drawing surface and not the stylus. Yeah. Like a, you know, and the only way to get any kind of pressure sensitivity up until now on iOS is to use some kind of pressure sensitive stylus. And it's just, I, I just feel like that's not right. And it's, you know, it even harkens back to the analog days where the pressure is registered on paper. It's the pen isn't smart about it. You know, it's the paper that absorbs the pressure if you're going to mm-hmm. do a hard stroke versus a light stroke. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's something going back to like force touch and haptics. Um, that's one of the things that got me super excited is not just that the uh, that the screen is recognizing your pressure and whether you're no, you're making a little uh, a light thin line or a dark thick line based on your pressure, but if the haptics can if the haptics can provide click feedback, it's a possibility that they can provide a little bit of rumbling feedback while you're drawing too to give you a little bit more or at least feel like you're getting a little bit more resistance, which I don't know if you've ever tried drawing on an iPad screen, but one of my biggest criticisms has always been the fact that like, if you're drawing with anything fine tipped, or even if, you know, even with a rubber stylus or one of those paintbrush styluses, it feels like you're drawing on glass. There's no, there's, (laughs) there's no uh, pretending that like even on a Wacom tablet, it feels like you're drawing on glass or on plastic. It doesn't feel like paper. I'm like, if haptics could do that even even to like 50% of what paper feels like that could be really incredible right like that that that's a completely different experience that we're feeling um with what's otherwise a, a stationary glass surface yeah. yeah so the things that come to mind for me for the future of this taptic engine going across everything apple does for ios it artists definitely it also really makes me think about like, you know, like you brought up the rumored, you know, mythical iPad Pro, you know, which obviously is not coming out this spring. Maybe now if people are thinking maybe that's part of the big fall, you know, stuff this year. I, you know, everybody's been saying that for a long time and there have been rumors that Apple's, you know, commissioning screens and stuff like that. But then it's, I've always thought, well, who's the market, right? And artists would definitely be one, right? Like I think, you know. No question. Yeah. Right. No question. Um. So I think that's got to be, you know, if if the device exists, that has to be part of it, I think. I feel like the iPad Pro market, the only way that they're going to, like, Apple has developed machines that are primarily designed for the creative area before, um, which is to say, like, the, the Mac Pro is, for, for a long time, was designed for software engineers and filmmakers and, you know, people who are doing high-level video-intensive work. Um, but... You know, people have argued, well, Apple doesn't really care about creatives anymore. And I don't necessarily think that's true, but I think their their viewpoint has broadened a little bit. And I kind of feel like for the iPad Pro to be successful, it has to aggressively target business in a way. And um, again, from a from an artist perspective, I see Force Touch being very useful because of the haptics, because of the pressure, all of that. 
Um, but from a business perspective, the thing that kind of caught my attention um, when we were talking about bigger screens and also haptic responses, um, digital keyboards. The idea, like we, we've seen really, really crappy implementations of this in, in BlackBerry a couple years ago when they actually, you know, they made the screen click uh, for, I think, the BlackBerry Storm. And then the Storm 2 had electromagnetic responses, but it just didn't feel very good. And it was really, uh, really sketchy, didn't, didn't quite work when you were tapping on it. But if you had an iPad Pro, say, that was, I don't know, 12, 13 inches, um, and you had haptics available for drawing programs, but then you pull up the keyboard, and when you're typing, you get the feeling that you're physically depressing keys, um, and you, you get the feeling of, like, uh, being on a key versus typing in between a key. Uh, I feel like that could potentially be a game changer for the iPad in regards to to writing and functioning with it. Yeah, I thought of that too. I think that would even, in theory, I could see how that would even help on the phone. Oh, yeah. But the big but is that it seems like you'd only get that feedback after pressing. Yeah. So it's more, it's not like you'd know, I don't see how they could do it unless they could actually raise the screen in advance, which doesn't seem like that <laughs> technology ex exists yet, especially if you're talking you know, at the same time about Apple's desire to move from glass to sapphire, which is hard. Like you can't make sapphire raise up in a bubble <laughs> on the fly. Uh, some substance could, and you know, but you wouldn't get that feedback before you press. You'd only get it afterwards. It would just be a way to know that maybe you just, you thought you were typing a D, but Ooh, it feels like I got the D and the F at the same time. Yeah. You know. The other thought is you use the pressure sensitivity to be that when you lightly brush your fingers against the keyboard, it doesn't actually type down. It just lets you feel what those keys. And then when you press a little bit harder, it types for you. Yeah. That, that might be a little bit of a, a or might be too much of an adjustment to do on an iPad. But I like the idea, especially I was actually thinking about it after I got a chance to type on the new MacBook, going back to that for a second, because the the new MacBook's keys, I mean, they talked a lot about the, the butterfly design and all of that, uh, but the keys are significantly shorter and thinner than they are even on the current MacBook Air. Um, and initially, uh, it took a second for me to kind of get used to it because it, I, I was really like hammering down on the keys because it's what I've, I'm used to with the air and like the, even the older, the older key, uh, keyboards with like really thick, uh, <laughs> manual keys. Uh, but with the MacBook, after a little bit of like tinkering with it, like feeling it out, I found that I was almost gliding around the uh, gliding around the tra the uh, the keyboard when I was typing. So it didn't, you know, it wasn't like physically picking my finger up, tapping another thing physically, da 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 da. But it was uh, moving my fingers very quickly uh, and only pressing down when I felt kind of like the ridges. Uh, onto a certain key. I just like I don't know if that makes any sense, but it it feels to me like the new MacBook keyboard is practically a, a tr like a, a force touch trackpad. It's it's so small and so thin um that it like I don't know, it 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 feels like that that is potentially down the line where Apple could go with yeah. keyboards. It it makes me think I won't like it because I feel like but on the other hand, I've never liked typing on any laptop keyboard ever made. It's all just a degree of how little <laughs> I like it compared to a real solid, clicky desktop keyboard. Um, it's intriguing to me, though. I do, and I I love that slow motion video they made of the fingers 
you know, making the whole thing go the down. The wobble the of the keyboard, right. yeah. Well, I, I would call it like a, not a thinness, but like a shallowness. That's the main thing. Is yeah. That it doesn't, it just, there's not that, there's just, and there physically isn't the room to press down. I just sent you a link, and this is way before your time. This is like. Oh, no, I know, uh, I know the RE400. Atari <laughs> 400. Which yeah. I remember wanting one. So I wanted every computer. At, like in of your course. Rooms. I wanted one of everything, and I got none of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember when this came out, and they had demo units at, like, I think it was Kmart. One of the stores had them. Mm-hmm. And there was the Atari 800, too. The 800 had a real keyboard. I'll put this in the show notes. The Atari 400, which had, I don't even know what you would call that. What would you call that, that I, keyboard? I, t- I feel like that was a touch-type keyboard before touch type was a thing on on max where it's just like it's a it's a mat with slightly raised indents for where keys should be but there's <laughs> they're like little um like little tiny buttons hidden underneath the keys they're not even buttons they're like uh dimples right it was so bad <laughs> and i remember all of my friends even the, you know i was the one the weird one who was obsessed with keyboard clickiness even at that age and nobody else really cared but everybody agreed my god this computer's keyboard is the biggest piece of crap ever <laughs> like this is insane i think it was like a classic i'm guessing internally at apple it was like a classic upsell where the atari 400 really only existed to get people to buy the atari 800 oh yeah where it's like, sure, you could you could have this, or for X amount of dollars more, you could have a real keyboard. You want a real keyboard, don't you? It was so they they advertised it as an advanced childproof design featuring <laughs> a pressure sensitive wipe clean keyboard. Well, I mean, I guess it would be a lot harder to spill applesauce on it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, I feel like spilling something on any computer in the eighties was bad news. Period. Yeah. But it's you know I think the new MacBook keyboard can beat that one. Yeah, well, I, so I like I completely understand your hesitation on it because I was def like I don't I'm not a huge fan of the laptop keyboards, especially the increasing obsession with uh, thinner and and shallower keyboards. But you need it for for a computer that's so thin that uh that it makes the current MacBook Airs look like you know giants. Um, but I like I genuinely really really enjoyed typing on it and I don't know if it's just I physically noticed the wobble of the keys after using that MacBook like going back to my MacBook Air but there is something significantly faster feeling about typing on it once you get used to it the first five minutes it feels like you're typing in bizarro land or almost like you're typing on glass where it's you're because I like when I first started using it I was pounding so hard that I was making the entire computer shake and i was i was really kind of surprised by that because i'm like i I don't feel like i'm typing that much harder than i do on my air and then once i sort of lightened up my pressure on it i was able to go really fast that's how i type on every device (laughs) yeah it's like bam 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 bam. but no it's i i don't know what it was just a really quick learning curve um and i really i really enjoyed it I, i to the point where I'm now that I'm using my MacBook, you know, going back to using my 11 inch MacBook Air, uh, I'm kind of jealous. I'm, I, I really want to use that keyboard. Not enough to get a new MacBook, but but enough that I'm like, all right, can, can it be next year already? I would I would like to see this evolve into the other computers. Uh, so this brings us back full circle to where we were half an hour ago talking about the a week later, how people seem more upset about the new MacBook than they were on the day of the event. Like mm-hmm. as it settled in, people are upset. And one of the things I've detected rec- a recurring complaint is that clearly what people wanted were the MacBook Air as we know it with a retina screen. 
And oh, yeah. They're not going to get it. And because I think they know in their heart this means they're never going to get it. That uh, as prices drop on the components for this new MacBook, and it can, it, once they can make it for like nine ninety nine, I don't know if they'll get it, if they'll do it all the way. Maybe they'll keep the 11 inch Air around longer at eight ninety nine or something. But once they can make this nine ninety nine, the MacBook Air goes away. Yeah, I have to assume so, which makes me a little bummed, to be honest. I really like the 11 inch computer, but the 12 inch is not that much bigger, honestly. It's, it's not that much. It's not like it, you have a little bit of uh, width here and there, uh, but Overall, it has very similarly the same footprint. Yeah, it's a funny sort of way that like they've they've expanded a lot of other things. Now there's two iPad sizes. Now there's three iPhone sizes, uh, and at least two at the you know current you know the latest and greatest. Mm-hmm. But now they're taking the standard MacBook from two sizes to one size, sort of splitting the difference. Yeah, bringing it down to all right, the Air is if you want the light model, you're just going to have to make do with 12 inches. And if you want more screen size variation, then let's look at the pro, the, the pro line. Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely it. But I think that it's as that settled in, people realize they're never going to get an air as we know it, where, okay, we're going to sacrifice a little, you know, it's not going to be the thinnest in the world, but it has, you know, a separate There's power port. It has MagSafe. It has a couple of USB ports, uh, has a Thunderbolt, this, you know, dongle, um, not a dongle, a port, a uh, port. Yeah. Um, uh, cause it, the dongle is what you want to avoid. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's just not going to happen. And I yeah. feel like as people, as that settled in, now people are getting, people are getting angry, but I, yeah, I still, still think though, like, but look at how different it is where in 2008, when Apple unveiled the air, no one wanted an air, it was $3,100 to get the good one. And mm-hmm. now you can get a, good new macbook for 1300 the base model is actually pretty good yeah it's not bad at all um i got you know my most recent air is 1400 dollars, something like that for a completely maxed out and i loved it it was a it was a great choice yeah and i the other thing i feel like people cannot get through their head is the way that apple is clearly saying you're not supposed to work with a power connection you're you know you're you know the future is not just wireless peripherals but wireless power, you know, that you're you're going to charge when you're, you know, at, at somewhere like overnight, and then you're going to use the thing all day without having it plugged in. You're just going to run with it. Yeah. Right. And you know what? I was actually, my one concern with the new MacBook was the lack of MagSafe, especially, I I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but uh, yesterday I had a, a fun accident with my MacBook Air where it flew like six feet out of a backpack. No. Yeah. So I picked up my backpack and it wasn't zipped all the way. And as I like picked it up to swing it around onto my back, my MacBook Air flew out of the back, out of the backpack and like slammed onto the ground. And it's fine, except for corner dent because SSDs are magical things. Wow. Um, Yeah. And, and like thick bezels. Thank God for not edge to edge glass, glass screens. Um, But uh, that said, like, I, as soon as that happened, and I was like, after I got over the heart attack, and they're like, oh my god, my MacBook's okay. Um, I immediately thought of, oh god, this is what's going to happen to a hundred MacBooks when someone trips over the USB C cord because they're just they're just going to go flying through the air, aren't they? Um, and that, like, I, I'm I'm kind of concerned still about the USB C being the the power charging solution, but it's like you said, I really think that by taking away MagSafe. 
Apple is basically saying, yo, you don't need to charge this computer. You know, nine to 10 hours of battery life. That should be good enough for anyone using this. And for me, I'm like, that's right on the edge. I feel like I would have been a lot more comfortable if they had released a machine that was like 14 to 16 hours of battery life, yeah. light web browsing, because 14 to 16 hours translates probably into seven to eight hours of like heavy usage or running multiple programs or, you know, watching video. Yeah, um, lots of Safari tabs open. Exactly. Doing, you, know. you know, basically how any, how any you know, moderate to pro user destroys their, their travel machine. Um, so nine to 10 hours makes me a little bit nervous, especially like, so during the keynote, um, I had a, I had my 11 inch MacBook air, which has the same, you know, this is last year's model has the same, uh, reported nine to 10 hours as the new MacBook. And I had it tethered to a, to a Canon rep or, a uh, Mark two shooting the keynote and the battery went from a hundred percent fully charged to 19% in an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> Oh, with, wow. with that tethering and i i ended up having to take out the take off the tethering and turn my screen down really low and just spend the rest of the the keynote like all right i'm just gonna i'm gonna write color no more photographs uh so i i think about things like that where i'm like yes this is not this is not the ideal use case for this for this new macbook um but still you know i it should probably last more than two hours um, in high usage scenarios um, without needing to be plugged in. And for people like maybe maybe Apple's just saying those those people, you know, people who need high usage, high battery things. Maybe, maybe you should still look at a computer that has a MagSafe. Right. For now. Yeah. For now. And, you know, and it's I'm not trying to say that it's not a loss because I like oh, I Almost everybody. I don't know if there's anybody who hasn't had one incident over the last the, the MagSafe era where somebody tripped over a cable and MagSafe just popped, you know, as advertised, popped right out, and you were like, "Wow, that I, MagSafe just might have saved my computer." It's happened to me, uh, so I'm not underplaying it. I definitely think that not having MagSafe is, in some ways, it's a loss because MagSafe is amazing and mm -hmm. what a clever idea, and nobody else has it. Um, low these many years later. Um, Surprisingly, but I really think that the message is you shouldn't be using it while it's powering, or at least while it's connected to a wall outlet. And mm -hmm. so think about it. And when this, when when Mark Gurman's uh, scoop on this design hit a couple, I think it was in January mm -hmm. during um, CES, and everybody, you know, the the first thing everybody said, well, this is this has to be wrong because there's no MagSafe, and there's no way they're going to get rid of MagSafe. And then the people who obviously had the right idea. We're like, well, iPad doesn't have MagSafe and an awful lot of people use their iPad the way other people use a MacBook. Mm -hmm. um, and you think about that. And then you also think, well, then what do you do with an iPad if you're using it all day, you know, as a writer, as a student, as whatever, and you're low on power? Well, you don't plug it in a wall. You use like a Mophie battery pack and plug it in. Mm -hmm. So, and you're going to be able to do that with the MacBook. Mophie MacBook case. Well, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about a case. Yeah, but, but no, I'm uh, totally like I, people were, what was it last week? People were like, oh, Apple is going to allow people to make battery cases for the MacBook. And I'm like, it's, it's standard. It's USB-C. Right. It's right. The, this is the first time like this is, this is a, uh, charging port that they, they don't control or own. Right. So they, I kind I kind of feel the power user move is not going to be to bring your 
your charging cable along with you with your USB only MacBook. But the power user move is to bring a you know high capacity Mophie style uh, power brick with you, and mm-hmm. then you have it. Then you don't need MagSafe because it'll just be sitting there right next to your MacBook on the table with a you know six inch USB cable. Yeah, I I was actually you know what who the person the person who is going to make bank on the USB-C accessories is who's going to make a, a hub, a USB-C hub that also has like a 10,000 milliamp battery in it. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that yeah. be great? Like you plug your USB-C into something like the size of a current Apple power brick, maybe a little bit longer. And then out of that, you get a 10,000 milliamp battery. You get a, a display port hub. You get USB ports. That that would be a that would be a killer uh a killer accessory for me. You can charge I'm, a couple hundred I'm bucks looking, for that. <laughs> I'm looking at my Mophie. It's old. There's a new one now. With it's much more clever. But I have this couple of years old Mophie juice pack uh, power station. And now I'm just looking at it, thinking like, well, look at all these sides. They could just fill it with USB ports. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like if if Apple can, you know, still fill ports while filling its laptops full of batteries. A, a battery manufacturer should totally be able to do that no problem that's definitely i think that's the power user move going forward is to treat it exactly like you would an ios device where you know the if you expect to be running low on battery by the end of the day don't assume that you're going to find a seat next to a, a wall outlet bring a battery pack along oh yeah bring it you know um i'm trying to find this article right now uh chris uh his name Chris uh, Christopher Finn wrote a uh, really nice sort of eulogy for the PowerBook Duo on Macworld a couple days ago. He's been doing this like old tech column, like uh, celebrating the history of past Apple devices. And I was thinking about like the PowerBook Duo was my first laptop, and I love it very very fondly. I was thinking about man, you know what? Again with the with the cool idea of like the MacBook is probably underpowered right now um but you know if people want to want to take it to the next level wouldn't it be cool if there was a you know powerbook duo dock style thing for the new macbook where it's like you plug it in and then all of a sudden you've got all of these ports and you've got a super huge retina monitor and everything's magical and maybe not apple maybe apple is not the person to make the fancy retina you know retina display uh adaptation for the for the macbook but i'm sure somebody might right yeah, I don't know, but I've got uh, Christopher's article. I'll put it in the show notes. It was a cool ma- machine. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I I mostly liked it because it was not a ThinkPad. I'll be honest. <laughs> God, look at the bezel around that display. I know that's <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful. What five pounds? I want to say. Are those volume buttons on the right? Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it had bezels. So no, no, quick. no. That's that, those were the screen brightness. Oh, all right. That's right, because you. My my trick was always like turn the screen brightness down really low and then switch from 250, 256 colors to black and white so you could get like an extra hour of playing Escape Velocity Nova. <laughs> I I, remember, I think I got like four hours out of that battery once by like keeping it on the lowest settings. Wow. Oh, God. <laughs> Anything that docked was always a clever... Look at how thick those keys were, though. I oh. know. Oh. That keyboard was so fun. Oh my god! Look at that, and it had little props. I'm, I'm reading. I forgot about that. I forgot about the, the little keto, feet. <laughs> little feet to prop the keyboard up. I don't. I think that was before we understood the ergonomics of propping. <laughs> we used to type with our palms up. Oh, Completely god. ruining our wrists. Yeah, exactly. the removable battery packs. Oh, that's amazing. All right, I got to link it up. I can't. I'm 
tempted to just read it right now. <laughs> yeah, well, an, an educated reading on the air with John Gruber of the Power Book Duo. <laughs> Anything with a doc, though, it always sounded like a great idea and never actually took off. Yeah, unfortunately. <sighs> see, I feel like in the handoff era, that would be so cool. Where you're just like, even even you just plug your USB-C MacBook in the... I, oh, I guess it does this all wirelessly at this point. You know, I I don't have to plug anything. Like, I don't have to plug my MacBook into my iMac because all of the things here I can mostly get on my computer via handoff. Or I can get everything from Dropbox directly. Like, I don't keep any files on my MacBook Air. My MacBook Air has like a tiny little SSD, like a 128 SSD. And then everything I just store in Dropbox and I just right. grab what I want. And then do you have your you have the air set up not to not to mirror your entire Dropbox? Mm-hmm. It's selective right. sync. So I have like my work files and then occasionally I'll pull over like if I'm working on a music project or a roller derby stuff, I have like that specific folder synced. But everything else is just if I need it, I'll download it somewhere else. Yeah. That's the killer. That that was like the level up for Dropbox that made it like infrastructure. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> Because then you could use it on in scenarios like that where you can't mirror it all. And on conversely, you can then use it in other scenarios, like if you have a big big iMac on your desk and all of your photos are, you know, it's like a humongous, you know, terabyte collection of photos. Mm-hmm. You can put them on Dropbox and not worry about what it's gonna do to your SSD and your MacBook. Oh app. yeah, you don't you don't wanna cry. I'm I think I moved all of my photos to Dropbox last year after they acquired Loom, which was my sort of go to cloud photo so a solution and i i'm not crazy about dropbox carousel because it's kind of it's kind of wonky and it's kind of broken right now but it does allow you to very quickly like go to years and dates and stuff and just knowing that all of my photos are backed up and away somewhere and then also locally on in my imac so i'm like all right i like i don't have to panic about losing five years of photos because hard drives start clicking or ssds explode or i don't i don't know what do ssds do when they die they just turn off. Yeah, I think they just get corrupt. I think it's like they t- just turn to static. Yeah. I don't know. I've never had one go bad, but uh, nor have I. Yeah, I think I think it's just like a just like a state of corruption. But they don't <laughs> click. No, they certainly don't click. I never have to hear that sound again. Knock on wood. Uh, let me take another break here, and I want to keep talking about photos. Um, and I want to ta- thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Harry's. Harry's makes uh, high quality shaving products for men uh you name it if it's related to shaving harry's does it uh they have their own razors that they design really nice nice heft nice design not blingy just feels like a nice thing in your hand they make their own blades they don't like white label blades from some unnamed place they went and bought uh like a hundred year old razor blade factory in germany and make their own uh super high quality razor blades, cut out the middlemen, sell them right to you. Their stuff, their blades, their uh, refills and stuff like that are as good as anybody else's and about half the price of the stuff that you can get from like Gillette or Schick. Just go to Amazon and compare the prices uh, that Amazon has, you know, famously low prices for, um, you know, Gillette fusion refills or whatever, and then compare them to Harry's and you'll see it's literally about half the price, a fantastic deal. Um, They've got shaving cream, shaving gel, aftershave, anything, you name it, uh, they have it. And they're coming out with new designs. You can go there. If you haven't checked out their website in a while, go there and check out some of the new designs that they have. Uh, really cool stuff. It's, you know, why should, 
it's just a pure internet play. Cut out the middleman. Don't worry about selling stuff in retail stores. Just they sell direct to you and uh, pass the savings along. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, I'm a really happy customer. I've been using them for, I don't know, uh, at least over a year. Great stuff. And it's just so convenient that you never have to worry about it. You just wait till you're getting low on blades and then go to their website. And 30 seconds later, uh, you've got a package on the way. Couldn't be easier. Where do you go to find out more? Go to their website, harrys.com. Check it out. Look for stuff. When you order, if you're a first-time customer, use this code, TALKSHOW, no the, just T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, and you'll save five bucks on your first order. So five bucks doesn't sound like a lot, but their starter kit is only like 15 bucks. The 15 bucks gets you uh, everything you need to get started, a razor, a pack of blades. And so you can use that code, get it for 10 bucks. It's an amazing deal, way more than $10 of value. Uh, so go there, check it out, and remember that code, Talk Show. It'll save you 5 bucks, and it'll let people know you came from this show. So my thanks to Harry's for once again supporting this show. Um, a, a while back, I've been meaning to talk to you about this for forever, Serenity. <laughs> you had a story. This is all the way back at Macworld. You did a story on um, the Lightroom for iPad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't get it. I've been a Lightroom user for years. And I've just, it's like I'm starting to turn into an old man who's afraid to use new stuff. I have i like Lightroom. I've been using it since 1.0. Uh, it was like I tried Aperture and I tried Lightroom. And at, the, at least back then, Aperture was really slow and Lightroom was really fast. And I was like, I'll go with this. And I've been a Lightroom user ever since. I don't get, I don't get the iPad version. Yeah, I'm, I feel like it's... <laughs> It's something that you have to actively insert into your workflow. Um, and not, like, you know, some things you just, they work seamlessly with you. Where it's just, uh, Pixelmator is a great example of, of similarly, uh, a, an app that's both available on the Mac and on iOS. Um, and I felt that it was like, it was really simple in Pixelmator. You just, you know, you go, you do this, and then Handoff does that magical. Um, Lightroom for iPad. I feel like it took me a good month to really feel comfortable with it and to really get used to it. Like uh, Jeff Carlson wrote our wrote our hands on, I think, for MacWorld when it first came out, and he kind of encouraged me to start using it. And I, I, I have to admit, I still don't use it all the time. Um, and I still like I'm I'm still going between Aperture and Lightroom, also to be honest, because Aperture has better. A better tethering workflow for me um in part because jason snell was uh he wrote a bunch of apple scripts for it but i i don't know it's tethering it, meaning that you're shooting shooting live right. um so like tether yeah exactly there's so many meanings of tethering nowadays uh tethering yeah you're connecting your camera to via usb to your mac so that anything that you take is showing up immediately on your mac rather than having to take it and offload and put back in um into a via S via SD card. Um, I don't know. I I feel like the app is really, really useful for kind of seeing your library and for editing, doing light edits. Um, but it, it again, like, like a lot of these is dependent on your internet connection and dependent on, you know, the, the closeness of your Lightroom library where like you can, I don't feel like you can do everything that, that I might want to do on Lightroom versus on Lightroom for the iPad versus on Lightroom for my Mac. I feel like um, I like the iPad a lot better as a photo editing 
uh, service or service, a photo editing platform, I really like being able to physically, uh, you know, physically highlight areas with my finger um, and physically be able to like color things in or, or change, uh, change dials by sliding like multi-touch gestures feel like a more natural editing experience because they feel more tactile than just pointing and clicking. But I don't, I also don't necessarily think that Lightroom for iPad is, um, is the best way to do it yet. It kind of, it, it makes me, it makes me question uh, in sort of in a broader example. I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but it makes me sort of question the uh, just companies in general being like, well, we have a Mac app. We have to be on the iPad. And we have to we have to have something on the iPad that uh, that links to our Mac app. And some people do this really well. And I think Lightroom is a is a decent example of of a good adaptation and a good linkage to its Mac app. But with other ones, it just it feels kind of throwaway. You know, it just it feels like um, like the company is just like we need we need to have a presence on here. Actually, some of uh, Adobe's other apps are really good examples of that. Where um, a couple a couple of their like Photoshop Photoshop Express for the iPhone, I. I remember being really excited when that first came out, being like, yes, finally, I'll be able to have a good way to edit photos. Like it was two or three years ago. And then when I opened it, I'm like, this does nothing. This does absolutely nothing that I want it to do. Yeah. My, my perspective is as like a decided, uh, like prosumer is probably the wrong way to put it because it puts the word pro before sumer. It's more like a, uh, <laughs> consumer con- with occasional Pro dabblings. Con- confessional. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I'm into photography enough that I I still like to buy real cameras. I don't just shoot everything on my iPhone and, I, you know, and I'll spend a thousand dollars. I have a, you know, I have a Canon 5D. It's years old now, the Mark II, but I have like a nice, uh, the 50 millimeter F2 le- F1.2 lens, which was, I don't know, I think it was like 1500 bucks. So it lasts forever. All right. The, the glass definitely lasts. Um, but you know, I have a couple thousand dollars of cameras, which is nothing compared to a serious photographer. But it's a lot more than most people. It's an investment. And which, which, where, you know, where should I be editing my photos? Has been a dilemma forever. And iPhoto was never right for me. Um, and Lightroom at first really hit a sweet spot. But the 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 problem I've run into with Lightroom is just that my, it ties my photos to my Mac. And they're not everywhere. And um, picture life doesn't really, I haven't really, they have a new thing for Lightroom, but it's like because I shoot in RAW and the, a lot of the photo upload sites want everything in JPEG, you have you don't to want like, raw, yeah. you have to like export manually, which is way too much work. Like, I'm not going to do that. I mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, I don't spend that much time. I just go through, throw out all the ones that are garbage, keep the ones that aren't garbage, find the ones that are actually really good, and then maybe spend a couple minutes, you know, tweaking them to make them perfect, you know? So there's really like, like I'll shoot, a, you know, like a, over a holiday or a vacation, I'll shoot like 300 photos. I'll throw a hundred out, maybe 150 out because they're garbage or duplicates, you know, equally good as another shot taken at the same moment. Mm-hmm. And I'll find maybe a dozen that are really good. And then I'll take those dozen and, you know, apply filters and tweak the exposure to make it perfect. And then that's it. That's all I do. And then I'm done. I don't want to sit there and like have to pick which ones to export and stuff like that. So I'm hopeful. I guess where I'm going with this whole thing is that I'm kind of secretly hoping that the new photos for Mac will be 
good enough for all of that that it'll make me want to switch from Lightroom. Even if I miss some of Lightroom's expert controls, that the overall flow of having my photos sync to iCloud and then I, you know, all I have to do is star them and then the starred ones will show up on all my devices and stuff like that. It's kind of what I'm hoping. Yeah, I so I've been testing the photos beta since I think the first first developer beta on the phone and the first developer beta on the Mac, which was last month, I want to say now. Um, and photos isn't perfect, but it feels so I used Loom um, last two years ago when it when it showed up. I want to say it started in 2013 and then Dropbox bought it last year. And I really liked Loom for exactly the reason that you were describing, where it's like your photos are everywhere, although Loom didn't have photo editing features. So anytime I wanted to edit something, I had to pull it down and edit it in like Photoshop or something and then throw it back up. And that was that was that was messy. It, did, it didn't have the seamless experience that I really wanted. And photos comes closest, I think, um, especially like talking about what what you really want out of a photo editor. Uh, the thing that really, like, that really uh, impresses me in photos is how easy it is to get a really nice edit from it. Uh, where like their editing controls are super simple. If you want them to be super simple, it's just you know it's three sliders. It's like the the light, the color, and uh, the black and white slider. If you want to tint your photo into black and white, um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of hidden stuff in there. If you drop it down, like if you drop down the light exposure, you've got exposure, highlights, shadows, brightness, contrast, stuff like that. Um, and on photos for Mac, there's even some more stuff that you can add like a histogram if you want you know more in depth about what your color is doing you can add like sharpening and definition and noise reduction and white balance and levels so you got you got a lot of controls there um which is not i mean it's not it's not as good as aperture and it's not as good as lightroom but i also feel like this is a 1.0 product and it feels to me very much iMovie 08 or not even iMovie 08 iMovie 11 where it's like Mm. there's there's enough in there for the con professional (laughs) uh that that you won't feel like you're just using baby tools the way that iphoto was um my my current struggle with photos for mac is that i love the syncing i love the editing tools favoriting is really easy albums are syncing which is really cool still no smart albums on iphone which I, I'm kind of bummed by. I feel like smart albums would be a really great way to organize certain things, like screenshots, for example. Um, and but maybe it's maybe it's too complicated on iOS right now. Maybe there maybe it's like a back project. But my my problem is I already pay ten bucks a month for Dropbox for you know having a terabyte of storage, um, and I have all my photos in Dropbox. And now I'm paying you know I'm currently paying four bucks a month for iCloud photo library and the iCloud services, but I'm sure I'm going to have to upgrade to the next tier as soon as I integrate my entire photo library into Photos for Mac. Right now I have about 5,000 photos and I think I have like 35, 40,000 photos sitting in Dropbox that I still have to to integrate into this new library. And I'm a little afraid about how much money I'm going to have to pay Apple every month to store all of those. Um, And also there's the... Apple has, you know, Apple wants to make it really, really simple when it comes to optimizing photos. I, I had a big conversation with some of the Apple reps about like how the that checkbox that says optimize only like a certain subset of the photos on your hard drive and how that works. Um, and basically, it's um, it's 
dynamic. So it depends on how much space you have free and how much space you have on your hard drive total. And it opti- like it chooses the photos automatically for you based on like what photos you've opened recently, um, the photos in your favorites, and uh, any photos that you're editing immediately get pulled down from the cloud. Which is like that's that's nice, and uh, and I like the idea of having to take it out of the user's hands. But at the same time, it makes it a little hard to be like, all right, well, I know I want a specific album uh, to show to people. Uh, do I have to star each one of those photos individually? Like, do I do I have to copy all of those photos and put them into a Dropbox album to make sure that they stay locally on my machine versus? getting vanished up into the cloud? Do I have to open all of them? You know, it's it's the Apple tries to make things super easy. And for the majority of people, they're super easy. And it's great. And then there are the the weird use cases where you're like, I just, I really just want to know that my photos are here so that I can use them. (laughs) It's a really hard problem. It is because it is really wide ranging. Once you once you start thinking about everything that you need in a complete photo system everything from import and reading all the various raw formats of all the various cameras and doing a good job of that which in and of itself is like an underappreciated thing that apple is doing you know how many times do you get like a mac os 10 update that includes you know support for raw cameras yeah it's like 40 new raw cameras and you you think I, I didn't know that there were that many cameras Starting in existence. Starting from that to all the editing and the smarts of that that you want, and then but then you get into the syncing stuff, and it's so complicated. You know, it, it's you know like just think about like with Apple Watch. Like I know that there's some people who are like uh, I think that they've said they've you know it's officially documented that there's only 75 megabytes of storage for photos for photos. Yep, and everybody's like, well, that's crazy because it's, it's like no, they're not going to give they're not going to put your full size photos they're going to scale them because it doesn't make any sense to it's have a tiny retina screen why would you have full-size photos 20 megapixel photos <laughs> right even like eight megapixel photos right off the iphone it doesn't make any sense it's only a it's a 42 millimeter screen yeah so that, you know you're going to be able to fit a lot of photos in 75 megabytes but how do you do that scaling though where does that where does that happen and you know it's just so complicated yeah, and I well, I feel like they've gotten they've gotten some of that kind of figured out already because when when photos aren't stored, so I have optimization turned on for both my MacBook Air and my iPhone because I don't want you know five thousand uh, five thousand photos worth of space taken up on my computer. Um, and for all of the photos that aren't stored locally, you still see. Uh, like low res previews. And I have to wonder if those low res previews happen to be the same size as our nice little retina screen. I feel like the, uh, what the, the 38 millimeter is something like 212 by yeah. 300 something. So those are, those are pretty small pictures to begin with. So it may just be that like all of those low res snapshots that, uh, that photos for Mac and photos for iOS stores by default may be the perfect size for, for retina on, and those don't take up very much space at all. I think those are those are probably like kilobytes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what what is your overall verdict so far on iFound the, the the beta for Mac? 
I, it's surprisingly solid, actually. Yeah. I um, especially for, even from the first beta, I had a couple of problems um, initially with iCloud Photo Library randomly turning off, where I turn it on and then I'd relaunch Photos for Mac and it would be off, and I turn it on again. Uh, but aside from that, um, it's really fast. Even I've got five thousand fifty photos in it right now, and the thing scrolls ridiculously fast. Um, like I'm, I'm in the big, I'm scrolling through it right now while I'm talking to you. And again, I'm on a MacBook Air. It's not like, not like I have, uh, a, a hundred cores at my disposal or a really high level video card. Um, but it, it's speedy opening up photos that aren't stored. Like I'm going to go back. I don't know. Here's something from CES. That's almost definitely not stored. And it took two seconds to load up from, yeah. from online. It does like, it's, it's. It's super fast. Also, I really appreciate how uh, how well it syncs with iCloud. iCloud's always been one of those things where, you know, it can either work really well or it can just completely wet the bed. And, um, and especially I noticed this. Um, I was bored on a flight uh, back from San Francisco and the internet was – completely uh completely failing because you know gogo air is either great or it's terrible so i was just sitting on my uh sitting on my iphone and playing a bunch of like alto's adventure and then going into photos and being like you know what i'm just gonna go through all the photos i have on my on my phone and like delete and uh organize accordingly because i've got nothing else to do and i've got all of these photos and i know i've got like duplicates and things like that um and i did all of this with no internet access and in the back of my head uh, and this includes like photos that aren't stored locally on the device that have like the little processing symbol on them. And I'm, in the back of my head, I'm like, is this going to accidentally screw over my entire library? Well, it might as well find out. It's a beta, right? Um, and it synced everything perfectly. And all the favorites that like I queued while I was offline, it pulled all of those down as soon as I wow. got off the plane and like reconnected to LTE. And something like that is really, really a big market change for Apple, at least for me. Uh, where, you know, I I basically did all of that having implicit trust that my photos wouldn't either disappear or accidentally triplicate. And I was right. Granted, yeah. that, you know, <laughs> that may not be 100% of the time. I, it worked for me. Maybe it won't work for other people. I'm kind of hoping that it's that it's better, though. I'm I, like, I haven't really run into any photo loss problems with iCloud photo library and that was my biggest concern because your photos are precious you know that's that's yeah. the one thing that I'm I'm always super concerned about your photos are potentially your life you know they're they are I mean they are they're snapshots of your life they're well it's it's true it's and it's like when you talk to people who've worked I mean you even did so you've probably maybe you have first-hand experience but when you talk to people who work at Apple stores it's like that like worst part of the job is somebody who comes in and has a dead hard drive and it can't be resuscitated. And then they, they start to cry and they say, you know, my, you know, my husband died a couple months ago and I have my last year of pictures with him. They're only on that hard drive mm -hmm. or something like that. And it truly, you know, you can't even uh, overstate how devastating it can be. It no. really is like, like the, probably the most important data that Apple keeps. Yeah, it's it's incredibly vital digital data. And we think about, you know, old analog photos. Oh, I've got, you know, boxes and boxes of snapshots that maybe I'll never look at again. Um, but those boxes are there unless they get burned down in a fire, you know, which those... is a lot less. It, it's a real issue. I mean, and it's, it's definitely happened or water damage, you know, I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, it's, it's water damage and fire are, are two huge things for, you know, 
archive boxes or albums of photos. Yeah. But those things are less common than hard drives going belly up. Yeah, exactly. And you could argue, well, digital data is a lot easier to replicate, which is true. And it's yeah. like the more copies you have of something, the better. But there's still that that fear. I mean, I lost when my my last big hard drive crash and the one that kind of forced me to think very seriously about good backup solutions. Um, I did an art project with a friend where we went across the country and did a made comedy and tragedy masks and like took pictures in front of various historic landmarks. So we had these wonderful photos of like hanging over the <laughs> Niagara Falls with tragedy, like looking and potentially like, Oh, what, how far down is it? And um, we had like a, we had a digital camera and we took 80% of those photos and all of them were lost in that hard drive crash. And I did, I was lucky that we also were taking some backup photos with like a really crappy, like 24 exposure Insta camera. Cause we just thought, well, that might be fun. Have some like real media with the digital media when we do our exhibition. Um, and those are the only records that I have that that trip even existed. Ugh. It's it's I mean it's not not nearly as uh, as heartbreaking or as as sad as like losing you know losing like photos a of a loved one. Yeah, but exactly. Still. But it's still a you know it's still a mark in your life. Photos are one of the photos and Twitter <laughs> at this point are like the <laughs> the the mark points of where I can be like yes this is how my life is going this is this is what I did last week. Um, because sometimes everything's are you know things are so crazy that you you stop and you forget you know the day to day you forget the funny little moments that happen yeah. in the in betweens, and I I really I love that Apple is putting such a big emphasis on photos. I think that um, if they if they manage to make this work, um, I mean they have they have such a wonderful camera in the form of the iPhone, being able to actually you know have those memories stored in easy easily accessible place. And being able to share them very easily is so much better than what it's been so far, which is dumping them in folders and syncing them with Dropbox and praying that like, oh, I'll organize these eventually when someone has a photo organization service that I don't hate. And strategically, it becomes a powerful form of lock-in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the cynical out there can say that that's the primary reason they're doing it. I don't think so. I think that their first goal is let's build a, a complete workflow, everything from sucking in the photos from your iPhone and iPad to, you know, the photos you import from any standalone camera you might have to where do you store them, which copies are where, and how are they so that you can get them anywhere, anytime from any of your devices and, you know, do a good job editing them. I think that it's really about the customer experience, but then once they have that in place and once people can trust it, man, when would you ever want to switch to any other device? If, if that's part you know, of, um, you know, your workflow. Yeah. It's not just about, oh, I like iPhone or I like iOS more than I like Android. It's, well, my iPhone has all of my photos on it and it has iCloud and it has my, you know, it has the heartbeats that I've sent to my husband on my Apple watch. Why would I, why would I want to give that up? And especially I, I didn't even talk about, you know, the, the project side of photos for Mac, which like they've carried over the same things that you can do from iPhoto, but they they added a bunch of other prints and dynamic prints now so that you don't have to, instead of having to like crop photos for a certain size, uh, you can print photos no matter what size or shape they are. So you can print like square photos or you can even print panoramas and Apple will like automatically um, like 
print any size photos for you. And like being able to not only store them digitally, but also have the option of having those physical copies and you never have to worry about going to a Walmart or a Rite Aid or anything like that. Or, you know, it's just just there. That leads me to a serendipitous segue. Our last sponsor of the show, uh, our good friends at Fracture. So speaking of getting analog printouts of your photos, Fracture is a service that takes your photos and prints them directly on glass. They don't take a piece of paper, print it on paper, and then put the paper behind the glass. They've got some kind of crazy proprietary process where they take frames of glass and print your photos directly on them. Very much like a retina screen where it makes the picture look like it's on the glass, not behind glass. Uh, They have all sorts of sizes ranging from the small to medium to classic to large. Their large one is downright huge. It's like 28 inches by 21 inches, something like that. Uh, Really, really big, though. Uh, They also have square, and the square ones uh, go from very small, perfect for a desktop, all the way up to, I think the biggest square size they have is 23 by 23 inches. Truly, truly wall size. Um, They ship with everything you need uh, to hang them on the wall, to prop them up on your desk, to prop them up on a mantle or a shelf or something like that. It's all there right in the cardboard packaging that your Fracture ships with. Very, very clever. It's clever enough just to check them out, just to see the way they pack pack these things um, and package them in and of themselves. They have great prices, really high quality, great customer service. And if you go to their website at FractureMe.com, They even have like a really cool blog where they show great examples of what people are doing with Fracture and um, even things like apps, app reviews for iOS photo editing apps and tips and stuff like that to get better photos. It's if you're into photography, it's a great website uh, just to check out for the photo nerdery that they get into. Um, And best of all, they have a great deal for listeners of the talk show. They have a coupon code. Daring Fireball, all one word. Just type that in when you buy. And anything you get with that code, you will get 15% off. So the prices are already great. Use that code Daring Fireball, though, and they'll know you came from the show. They'll know that you're. that's how you got to know Fracture. And you'll save serious money. Um, the big ones are expensive. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, it's like 125 bucks to get the the biggest size that they have. Hey, 15% off on that is uh, real money. So uh, go ahead and check out Fracture at FractureMe.com. And remember that code, Daring Fireball, which will save you some bucks and help support the show. So here we are. We've, we're an hour and 40-some minutes into the show, hour and 50 minutes. And we haven't even talked about Apple Watch yet. I have been thinking about the timing of the event, and I'm still confused why they held it when they did, because uh, March 9th is just so far in advance of them taking pre-orders a month later and six weeks ahead of them shipping. Um, and I can't help but think that, and I, you know, I've been talking with your colleague at iMore, Renee Ritchie, about some of this, and the consensus seems to be that Apple kind of got locked into that date 
because they expected maybe like when they locked in Yerba Buena and started making the plans for the event that they were sort of expecting to ship the watch sooner than they're going to maybe like an early April thing instead of a late April thing. Yeah. I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm two minds on that, on, on that because on one hand, I think that, yeah, they were timing to go for a specific date and a specific time and say like, hoping that we'll, you know, we'll, we'll launch for a good, a good solid spring. But then I think as that kind of slipped a little bit when we got Tim Cook saying April in, uh, in the last financial call, I want to say for the watches launch. And then they're like, well, we've got this, but, but honestly, my, my real thought is it gives, it gives the appropriate buildup for sort of the anticipation of the watch it gives them time to roll it out in magazines and it also gives them a, a it gives them the time to showcase them in the stores not only to build the uh build and put in the tables that they're going to need to show off the watches but also i mean starting april 10th they're going to have appointments for people to be able to come in and try on the watches and play with them and really get a sense for how they you know up till now like i've played with some and you you were at the september event right and you you've played with some um but the majority of the public, all of they've seen about the watch is a ton of news articles and a couple of maybe like 15 second, very dark and blurry hands on with the watches. Uh, they really haven't had a chance to experience it themselves in their hands. And it's it's what, you know, makes the Apple stores magical and has always made them magical is that people can come in and actually like get to see how this product might change their life. And I think giving people two to three weeks to really get a chance to have some hands-on time and to see what, you know, not only see, all right, what kind of band combination do I want? Do I want the wa the sport? Do I want the watch? Do I want to like ogle the edition? Cause I'll never in a million years be able to afford it. Um, you also really get a chance to, to see what it's good for and, and what it might actually do for your life versus, you know, all of us assholes in journalism were like, this is what the Apple Watch is going to do for you, or this is what the Apple Watch absolutely won't do, and this is why the Apple Watch is useless, this is why the Apple Watch is wonderful. Uh, but being able to 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 sort of have a little bit of time to, to play with it yourself and be like, oh, oh, I see how useful this is. Oh, Siri actually works? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely multivariable. I mean, retail is definitely part of it. Hype is definitely part of it. Publicity is definitely part of it. Um, I think even the editorial schedule of uh, fashion magazines is part of it because they have a longer lead time. Um, but I've been thinking about it, and I, I definitely detect. I mean, I wasn't at the event last week, but just from what I can tell from the outside and from the small bits of communication I've had with with Apple, um, you know, in the last few weeks about the lead up to Apple watch. And just from what I've seen is that they're doing, uh, you know, a full court press on Apple watch that to me, they only really bring out this, this level of, of publicity and hype and PR emphasis for brand new products and and they don't really do brand new products that often i mean the last 10 years there's only three the iphone in 2007 the ipad in 2010 and now mm -hmm. this the watch in 2015 and i just i get the feeling that the difference is that they 
it, when you already have momentum and iPads are already selling and iPhones are already selling, then you can just say new iPhone and you can assume they know what an iPhone is and you just tell them, well, here's the stuff that's new and better in the new one. Whereas with something altogether new, like watch, um, they really feel like they have to do an extra amount of effort just to get the baseline level of consumer interest up and peaked at the right time for when they're going to start taking orders and start letting people into the stores. Absolutely. I mean, you look at you look at the sheer amount of press that Tim Cook alone is doing um, and the interviews that he's given. Every single interview, there's at least one moment where someone's like, are you wearing the Apple Watch? And he's like, yes, I am. And then proceeds to do a quick like two minute demo of something cool on it. And it's every time it's a slightly different, you know, demo. It's not he doesn't do the same like. I can check my calendars. I can play. I can Apple Pay. You know, I think about the first one. I think the first one was Charlie Rose. Is that was that right? The PBS one, yeah. Um, where he spent like two or three minutes, and he did show off Apple Pay in that one. And then each subsequent one, like Goldman Sachs, he talked about like why it was useful for him. And um, there was that most the Fast Company article that came out what yesterday or this morning that uh, where he's talking about the watch glances and every. It, it always feels. I really admire Tim Cook in that way for the the very subtle way he's able to do product marketing demos without making them feel like product marketing demos. I don't know whether it's the way that he presents himself or just the the like it's a very casual way of like Oh, I'm taught, you know, oh, the watch, this old thing. Yeah, let me talk about this and before you know it, I've given you a 3-minute demo and you you just think I'm talking about myself and like what I'm doing. It's it's really smart. I don't think it's any coincidence that Johnny Ive has done more press in the last two, three months uh, than in the rest of his year combined, rest of his career, I should say, combined. Of course. I, well, I mean, you think there, there are a lot of things riding on this, right? It's the first major post Steve new product launch. I mean, I think that Tim Cook and his team has done an incredible job in, you know, in Jobs' absence, but it's still like this is this is their first product. And um and I'm actually like I'm proud of the press for not being like the first post Jobs, you know, th- like making such a such a big deal of it, but I definitely like it's got to be weighing on them a little bit um to be like we have to make this a success and we have to be sure that this really this launches out the door like gangbusters um and it's also the you know how many i haven't worn a watch in 10 years um a, a lot of people i know are you know watches watches are not a daily uh daily wear item like they used to be um, and smartwatches, especially, I have not, you know, up until I tried on the 38 millimeter Apple Watch, there was not a single smartwatch on the market that would fit my wrist. Like, and uh, smartwatches just aren't like weren't targeted towards women at all. Like, not even, and not even like in a misogynistic like, no women for smartwatches. But it's just like, no one was thinking about small wrists and how a sm- like how a smartwatch screen might work on a small wrist. And Apple was the first one, you know, the the Apple Watch is the first one, uh, at least for me, where I'm like, oh, this not only fits on my wrist, but it's still functional. I can still do things on it. It's not like they've squished the screen down so far that, you know, it's now impossible to use, even though it it, it looks semi-nice. So it's, you know, I think they're facing the wearable issue, too. Like, everybody needs a phone. Everybody was going to need a smartphone. A tablet's a bigger one, but... I know it's just a few millimeters, but... uh 
a few millimeters here, a few millimeters there. And at this size, it makes a big difference. Um, I think that the, the, the highest praised design for a smartwatch to date, at least one that got a lot of mass market attention is the Moto 360, AKA the Moto 270, because it has the flat bottom on the round screen. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't really particularly care for it, but I think that, you know, it's, it's a lot of people have, have praised the design. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively large watch. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the first person who I've seen wearing it was Andy and Atko. Did you see it at the at the September event? Because that's when I saw Andy's watch was actually right right before we went in the doors for the Apple event. And I was actually like, hey, Andy, I've heard good things about this. Can you take this off? And can I put it on for a second? And he gives the moto to me and I put it on my wrist and the watch face itself, the 360, the 270, you know, is actually physically larger than the diameter of my wrist. Like there were there are parts hanging off each side. And and at that point, I was just kind of like, yeah, it's it's a pretty watch on you, Andy. But um, like this, this would basically look like I'm carrying around half a handcuff. I think the bottom line is that the more we learn about Apple Watch and the more we kind of get a sense of it is that it it's like you i feel like you can't overstate just how ambitious it is as a platform it's not just telling the time and getting your text notifications on your wrist at the same time uh it's a real platform and there is an inherent complexity to anything that ambitious and I don't know that it's a problem because I feel like the main things you're going to want to do, um, you'll be able to figure out. You're going to be able to figure out how to adjust your watch face and pick the one that you want. And you're going to be able to pick out the complications you want on the watch face. But I don't think it's quite as simple as the iPhone was in 2007. The iPhone, you hit the home button and there were, I think it was 13 apps that were right there on the home screen. And those 13 apps on the home screen gave you a quick one screen overview of the scope of what you could do with the app and just the names of the apps would let you know what they were. Um, I don't think Apple watch has that many more apps, but it's more. And there are a couple of other contextual modes that the original iPhone didn't have like glances and notification center that give you a little bit of extra complexity in terms of where are you and how do you get back to where you were? Um, and I, in some sense, I think it's almost more like a Mac in that sense of not being a problem insofar as that you can be a Mac user and not have explored the entire system and used every app. And it doesn't mean that the Mac is too complex or too complicated because you're able to figure out the things you really want to do. Absolutely. So I, I went to the Apple Watch page out of curiosity and I was like, all right, how many how many default apps are there? And if you're if you're not counting the clock functions, there are 16. And if you count the alarm, stopwatch, timer, and world clock, you get 20 total. Uh, so you've got you know seven more apps off the bat. Um, it, still, I mean, overall, you've got a very similar um, similar build to the original phone in terms of like messages, SMS, phone, mail, calendar. But you've got two apps dedicated to the exercise portion, which you were just talking about. And I think that's that's going to be really key for the watch, especially we didn't really touch on research kit. Um, but it's some that's something that really sort of made an impression to me during the event. Um, the idea that, you know, Apple 
Apple's not only going to build this revolutionary technology, but they're actually going to put this revolutionary technology to work at making our lives not only better, but potentially longer um, by using all of this integrated stuff that they've been putting together over the last two or three years. Um, but yeah, you've got you've got Maps, Passbook, and Siri, which of course are new um, in the last couple of years. Camera remote, which hooks directly into your phone. Uh, you t- or uh, Apple TV remote, which I'm excited to actually see and play with. Like there's, there's so much more. It's such a more mature, as you were saying, it's a more mature product. I think that it's um, Apple has Apple's learned from its its successes, its failures, its mistakes, its its you know wins. Um, the fact that their you know watch kit is still re- very re- rudimentary and it it is built you know they're extensions basically they're not full apps and i don't even know yet whether or not like third party apps will be able to really run on the f- on the app if or on the on the watch if your phone is not um in wi-fi range i don't know if that's that's something that you can do with current watch apps watch kit apps but um but the fact that there are watch kit apps at all for the first generation of the apple watch is huge the fact that people have been able to develop for them since November is huge. And the fact that Phil Schiller basically said, this is step one and full native watch apps are going to be coming soon. Like they're, they're clearly, I mean, there's, there's a lot of thought that's been put into this, this launch. Yeah. Just today in the uh, fast company article, the interview with Tim Cook, with the authors of Becoming Steve Jobs, Brent Schlender and uh, Rick Tadzeli, um, Tim Cook specifically mentioned the difference between iPhone launching without an app store, a year out from an app store, and um, Apple Watch launching with an SDK that came out months in advance and maybe not full-fledged apps, but watch, you know, with third-party developer support right there on day one. And, you know, they're already promoting these apps, uh, third-party apps before the watch is even out and just how different that is, how much more fully formed this platform is at this point than iPhone was in, in 2007. Especially Tim Cook's Fast Company article, I just... It really, it really spoke to me. Uh, Cook throughout the article really emphasizes um, that the watch couldn't have been made without Apple's culture and without Apple's sort of big picture focus on uh, what. What did he say? That um, not living in a small box. And he says it's you know a, thi- a thing a, a thing from Steve about you know putting your dent in the universe. Um, but that that comes up repeatedly throughout the article about, you know, not lim- pret- like operating as if you do not have limits. And, you know, if you run into limits, acknowledging them and then moving past them and, and really, you know, believing that you can, you know, that you can work and live and build in a world um, where you're not you're not boxed in. You're not limited by outside factors. Um I, you know, I, I feel like that that's a that's a philosophy that can occasionally, you know, go a, go a really bad way. Uh, but with the watch, it really does feel like they like always Apple took their time. They stepped back and they said, all right, let's you know, let's really machine this thing within an inch of its life. Let's make sure that, you know, what we're releasing is the absolute best product that we are most proud to put, you know, our names on. Because, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They could have released a watch 
last year and it could have been bare bones and it probably, you know, it probably would have outsold the pebble two to one. But you talk about, you know, <laughs> when we look at, you know, the, the most recent Samsung Galaxy, the S6 phone, right? It's at this point, Apple has Apple has become a company that everybody looks to whether or not they put out a, a gangbuster blockbuster product or just a, a incremental revision. People look to them, people, you know, copy, innovate, build off of their ideas. Um, and if they had put out, you know, if they had put out Apple Watch version 0.5, um, with no app store and with limited apps, they they probably still would have had the basic design down. They would have had the digital crown. They would have had the the button, and then, you know, the, the then they'd have to not only deal with their own internal struggle of being like, all right, well, we need to make this super, you know, we need to make this even better. We need to figure out how, a way to to elevate this. But then they also would have to deal with the competition trying to copy the few things that made it unique in the first place. Did you see this article last week? Um, uh, Greg. Koenig wrote it, uh, how Apple makes the watch. Um, it's just great speculation. I mean, he admits it's speculation, just, but based on those three videos that Apple put out with how they work with the aluminum, how they work with stainless steel, how they work with gold and looking at the processes that they use, the, the, the milling, the, uh, smelting, whatever you want to call it. And just talking about the details and Greg knows what he's doing. He's I've known him for years uh, through. He works with my friend Duncan Davidson on Luma loop, these great custom made high end um, camera slings, you know, and uh, you put them around your chest and you can attach your camera to them. And Greg's the guy who designs all the, the little pieces, the connectors, the O rings, you know, the, everything that goes on it, the metal. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to working with metals like aluminum and steel and stuff like that and making high quality stuff. Um, and I thought one of the points, his whole article is great. I'll put it in the show notes, but the point that he makes that I thought really stood out is that the smaller the device, the more the attention to detail matters in the market. And I've thought that firsthand, having seen these watches in September, that no matter how good Apple's product photography is, and their product photography is, you know, top of the line, it's as good as anybody's. No product shot really does justice to how good these Apple watches look in person. When you feel them in your hand and you look at them with your own eyes close up, um, the attention to detail is really, really great. And I think you need the, that firsthand experience, which means going into an Apple retail store or some other place where they sell them to, to see it and to get excited about buying it. And I think Apple knows this. It's, it's just as beautiful a piece of jewelry as it is a smartwatch. And I think that, I mean, you, you take Mark Newsom and Johnny Ivan, you put them in a room together. Obviously, they're going to make something something gorgeous, something that you'd be proud to, to wear on your wrist. Uh, but the fact that they were able to do this and include, you know, watch OS, you know, include iOS, include all of this, all of the extra stuff and make it look just as beautiful in your hand as it is when you're actually physically interacting with the the display. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And those bands, that was another thing that I really noticed in April is I didn't get a chance to play with a lot of the bands in September. I think I, you know, I tried on the sport and I had two, maybe two minutes with it, if that. So I was like, pink sport band. Okay. This is really nicely built for a sport band. But, um, in April, I got a chance, or in April, in in March, I got a chance to play with, uh, I got a chance to see the leather band. Um, 
and the the both the modern buckle and the classic buckle. And I got a chance to try the Milanese loop, which I thought I was going to absolutely hate because I'm not a <laughs> I'm like I'm not a fan of metal bands. Uh, they're cold, you know, they they get caught in your your hair. Um, and I put that on and I'm like, oh my God, I like I was planning on getting a leather band and now I have to completely reevaluate my whole uh, <laughs> my whole plan because they're those bands are beautiful. I mean, yeah, I got to try the Milanese back in September and I remember thinking I wouldn't like it because I like to wear my watch, not tight, but snug. Um, and it seemed to me, given that it was magnetic, that if I closed the Milanese loop to be snug enough to be pleasant, then when I'd flex my wrist, the fact that it was only connected magnetically, it would slide, you know, the magnetic closure would slide along the band and then it would be too loose. Um, but that wasn't the case at all. It's once you have it on somehow the magnet for lateral forces, it's very, very tight. And if you flex your wrist, it doesn't change. Um, but yet it's not so strong that if you want to take it off, that if you get your finger underneath it and pick it straight off, that it's hard to get off. Um, no, it, it, you really have to try it to, to believe it. Yeah, it's it's exactly like the force touch trackpad. It's it's one of those things that I mean, I really sometimes I wonder if Apple intentionally makes products where they're like, you have to come and try it out before you purchase it, because we really want you to see just how ridiculously good it is. Yeah, I don't I think the retail stores are important to everything Apple sells, small, big, Mac iOS, whatever. It's been important to the whole success for story over the last 15 years. Um, I mean, people don't talk about the halo effect anymore, but I think that definitely was what fueled it, where people would come in because they wanted to buy an iPod. And back in the early mm -hmm. days, they'd even call it the iPod store. And eventually they'd say, hey, I like this store. I like this people, this company's products. Maybe I'll try one of their computers and I'll try one of their phones and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, so I'm not trying to underplay the importance of Apple's retail stores in any of their products, mm -hmm. but I really do think that the hands-on nature of a watch and the personal nature of it and the attention to detail that's only visible at real life distance and size, that the the watch is the first Apple product where their stores, their retail stores are essential to the success of the product. I don't think they could be doing this without retail, mm -hmm. without their own retail. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I honestly don't think they would have been able to sell the the iPhone or the iPad the way they did without the store, without the Apple stores, and just that the the displays are one of the like the multi touch display. When you try to explain to people, oh yeah, you can do this and you can pinch and you can zoom, and people would say, oh yeah, I've used I've used quote unquote multi touch displays before. Those are those awful things you use at the movies, and they scroll and they lag and they're terrible. And then you actually you know, you'd go into a store and try one and, and you realize, oh, this was, you know, this is so fast. This is instantaneous. Um, I really do f kind of feel like the experience with the watch is going to be very similar where, you know, p again, with the with force touch, with with the um, with the digital crown, uh, with, you know, just all the interactions that you can use on the on the watch. I was I did uh, this week in tech last week. And one of the commenters like during the show, they have the, like the live chat. One of the commenters was like, you know, I was I was talking about how I'm really excited to use the use the watch as a driving tool because I hate mounting my phone because it's just like it's a big giant screen and it's like it's distracting you even if you're trying to get directions or something. And I'm like, oh, well, the watch is going to be really cool because it, you know, it's going to buzz you while you're, you know, to tell you to take a, a left or a right. And it's going to do different buzzes. So you're going to know like which which direction you need to turn. Um, and uh, I. Uh, I, I really think that 
uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, and, and you can use it to Siri to dictate. And someone says, oh, you're crazy. You're going to use a watch. Why would you, you know, you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to do something while you're driving. How dare, you know, you're being an unsafe person. And I'm like, how is that more unsafe than looking at, you know, a, a built-in screen in your car or looking at your phone mounted to a thing? It's like being able to go to Siri and pull your watch, you, you know, pull your wrist here to your mouth and say, you know, uh, tell, you know, tell my boyfriend that I'm going to be 10 minutes late because there's traffic on the highway. And then it either sends that via, you know, it dictates it, or you can send it as an audio message if the Siri dictation screws up. It's like, I don't even have to look at the watch. It just does it automatically. I don't have to look at a screen. It's, it's like, it's just stuff like that. I feel like it's not, there, there are scenarios you can't experience or envision unless you go into the store and you try it. I just don't understand how they're going to handle the crush of people that are going to be coming into the stores to look at the watch. Um, there was a report last week that you were going to need an appointment. I know they're definitely taking appointments where you can make one and come in and get some time scheduled where you can try on various versions. And now they're saying you don't need an appointment, but if you don't have one, you know, you might have to wait. And so I get the feeling that it's sort of like a hair salon where it's like, they'll take you if you're a walk-in, but you know, appointments are, are highly recommended. And I think apartments are highly recommended here. Yeah. Oh, well, I imagine um, it's going to be very similar to our to the press demo hands-ons where, you know, it's a, it's a crush of people in that demonstration area. And the reps were basically like, all right, we're going to, you know, the, the, those of you who are just, you know, plebeians who happen to be writing for, tech, you know, random tech blog, you, you'll get five minutes. And if you happen to be from the Wall Street Journal, maybe you'll get like 10 minutes. And if you're a celebrity, we'll, we'll give you like a full 15 minute tour of, of the watch and several different bands and like what you can do with it. Were and there I, celebrities there? Uh, well, Christy Turlington was walking around in the hands on area and there were definitely uh, it was a fun game to play during the event being like, all right. Press, Apple engineer, or fashion model. There were definitely a lot of a lot of people from the fashion industry um, there who were VIPs, um, and there weren't like there weren't any overt celebrities there that I could that I could recognize. But I'm also very bad at the celebrity face game, so back in September there were definitely celebrities. Oh yeah, like I I remember. I mean, what Stephen Fry was there? Is that right? Yeah, and a couple couple other people. Um, so it's like I'm not I'm not surprised by that at all. But in terms of yeah, how the how the tables are I mean, they had the the retail store tables at the event, which is actually really cool. They have uh, tables that can only be opened by like an employee badge. So all of the watches are like hidden and built into like secure safes that if you have an employee badge, you just like badge it in and then the, the table like rolls open and you have this beautiful, uh, beautiful jewelry store hidden counter of like all of the watches in their little nestled uh, containers. It's it was very very chic and very cool, uh, but also uh, you know I, I I am going to be interested to see how they can manage the crush of people. You're absolutely right. I, I it seems it seems like the day that you know that that April 10th that people are going to flood, and maybe I'm overestimating the demand for the watch. But I mean, you saw like that Reuters was it Reuters who had the like 65 percent of people don't want to buy an Apple Watch, and I'm like, so what you're saying is. 35% of people do? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite 69% not interested, 31% interested. It was, I think, 69% not interested in buying it, 25% 
interested in buying it and 6% undecided. But even so, even though it wasn't a full 31%, the fact that it was 25% is astounding. In other words, one out of four people that they polled said they were interested in buying Apple Watch, which is a product none of them have ever actually seen in person. None of them have used. They're probably underinformed about what it can do. And it requires an iPhone 5 or iPhone 6. So with all those things, if one out of four Americans wants is interested in buying an Apple Watch, if anything, I mean, for them to spin that as as bad news for Apple, or as they called it, a sign that it might be a tough sell, uh, it's astounding. Because I it, I think it's if, if the poll is accurate, it's jaw-droppingly good news for Apple. Maybe the best news in the company's history. That's a blockbuster product. One in four, like, can you imagine? Can you imagine one in four people buying the original iPhone? <laughs> so, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I mean, I think we've covered we've covered most of the bases. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just really excited for for this year in terms of Apple products. Like, Apple has so much on its plate right now. Uh, I was talking about this with Renee uh, Richie the other day, where we're just like, when we were trying to decide, like, we, we knew that something else was coming at the Spring Forward event. And we were like, all right, what of the potential, like, 12 products like there's the Apple TV thing. I guess we didn't talk about the Apple TV thing, but there's not there's not much to talk about other than HBO and also like clearly this proves that an Apple TV update is coming sometime down the line. Yeah, there the the tell was that the there was the slide at the event where they said starting at sixty nine dollars. <laughs> Starting at $69. <laughs> Starting at $69 for a device that there's only one configuration. But that wasn't a mistake. I mean, I that to me is just a clear sign that they know that there's new hardware coming and that they just wanted to get this out uh, for the HBO Game of Thrones uh, promotion. Yeah, let's let's get them off the shelves and into people's living rooms in time for them to watch Game of Thrones. And then they're going to be so hooked on the service and using AirPlay that when we launch our new device, you know, there's been a rumored SDK for the Apple TV for God knows how many years. But like this is this is probably the year to do it. You know, when you think about like now you have the watch as a potential controller, too, in addition to your iPhones, your iPod touches, your iPads like this is this is the year to probably launch games on the Apple TV. So let's wrap it up. Uh, Serenity Caldwell, you can read her writing at iMore, where she is uh, the senior editor. Uh, what's your title? I am the uh, managing editor for iOS over at iMore. Managing editor for iOS at iMore. Great stuff over there. And on Twitter, you are uh, Saturn. Yep, Saturn. Saturn. S-E-T-T-E-R-N. Great Twitter account, uh, highly recommended follow. Uh, and my thanks to, to all of our sponsors. Let's see if I can remember them all. Uh, this week we have, uh, Squarespace foremost Harry's and fracture. Uh, so my thanks to them and, and my thanks to serenity, uh, for your, all of your time. Thank you, John. This was a lot of fun.